Stealth Boom Boom, a fortnightly podcast about some great stealth slash stealthy video games and also some rubbish ones. On every episode, we go in-depth and all spoilery on one specific game and we discuss whether said game stealth and its boom boom are up to snuff. My name is Colin Mahern and joining me on this episode are two naughty, naughty boys, more commonly known, of course, as Les Enfants Terribles. Firstly, <laughs> it's Adam Carroll. Good evening. Alongside him, it's Josh Wise. Hello. I don't know why I had to get one Les Enfants Terribles off the top, because we should take bets. How many times will that be uttered? I would hope for over 10, around 20 maybe, would be my estimate. But before we talk about Les Enfants Terribles, or anything in relation to the game we're talking about today, we need to get into the right headspace to when the game we're talking about, when that actually came out. So, lads, tonight... We're going to party like it's September 3rd, 1998. Yes, of course, before we chat about the game that we're going to be talking about, we delve into what was happening in and around the world. Or well, on the not in and around the world. We don't talk about what was happening in Mars or Jupiter. We talk about what was happening on Earth, but in and around the date of the 3rd of September, 1998. And one day later... On the 4th of September, ITV aired a brand new quiz show for the very first oh. time. Oh. It was hosted by Chris Tarrant and it was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? A gold, golden era. Also, on that exact same day, a company was founded in California, USA, and that company would eventually have a pretty big impact on the internet. The company was Google. Oh. And about a week and a half later, on the 14th of September, MTV would debut a brand new television show that would have a fairly big impact over there. And it was called Total Request Live or TRL. Keeping it on music, the number ones are actually quite different for this episode. In America, Steven Tyler was adamant that he didn't want to be left out of anything Yes, Aerosmith's giant, giant hit, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, entered the charts this week at number one in America. (laughs) In the UK, topping the charts, we had James Dean Bradfield, Nicky Wire, and the drummer, whatever his name is, of the (laughs) Manic Street Preachers with If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next. What tune. Talk about polar opposites there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A song about the Spanish Civil War and another song about Bruce Willis. An asteroid. (laughs) In movies, bringing people into the cinemas in the UK was a film that we discussed on our Commandos episode. Oh. Because this was a time, I think this is the reason, this was a time when films had staggered release dates. It was The X-Files movie oh yeah the um fight the future i guess in this country it didn't have that subtitle in america a different number one tom hanks and steven spielberg joined forces 
to create what many call the greatest war film ever, Saving Private Ryan. It's a bit good. It is a bit good. It is so good. The, that opening 20 minutes is unreal. I think you actually referenced it during our Commandos episode. I think I did. I think I did. Phenomenal stuff. So that's what was happening in and around the 3rd of September 1998 on this very planet. But now it is time to discuss the game that we're meant to be talking about today in a segment we like to call Back of the Box. And yes, the game we are talking about today is Metal Gear Solid. (laughs) And some people, some listeners, some youngins may be wondering, what exactly is Metal Gear Solid? And I can tell you that it is a movie. Uh, It is a movie that you sometimes get to play. Uh, And in those instances where you are playing, it's a third-person stealth game, but it's mostly a film. (coughs) The places that Metal Gear Solid came out to, the platforms and the release dates, obviously first coming to PlayStation, the PS1 in Japan, on the 3rd of September 1998. It would come out in America a month later in October 98, and it wouldn't come to Europe until February 22nd, 1999. So quite a bit afterwards. Uh, Then, of course, because, you know, it was a success. So they were like, what can we do? Let's release another edition called Metal Gear Solid Integral. Or in some places, it's called like uh, Metal Gear Solid Special Missions. That came out about a year afterwards, more or less everywhere else in Japan. It was June 99 in America, October 99 and same in Europe. Then it came to PC in America, uh, the 24th September 2000 and in Europe, a month later. And then, of course, we had the remake, the Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes, which came to GameCube in March 2004. Mm. And as people are listening to this, in about a month's time, I think. Oh, no, two months' time. I apologize. You are going to be able to play Metal Gear Solid on your PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X and S, your Switch, as part of the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection Volume 1. Mm. Now, this is the part of the show where we typically look at the back of the physical box. And the box we're looking at today is the back of the UK and Ireland box. And I am holding my original Metal Gear Solid case. Oh my God. Lovely. And that's what I'm looking at here. Uh, My original Metal Gear Solid case that also has a demo for Silent Hill in it. Oh my God. What a box. On the back of the box, you have Yoji Shinkawa, a name we'll discuss more and more, but his art of Liquid Snake and Solid Snake. And you have text as well that says, infiltrate a terrorist stronghold to crack a nuclear conspiracy Focus your mind, sharpen your senses, stay alive. Metal Gear Solid, tactical espionage action. And there's one thing on the back of the box that I think we're going to be discussing later because you don't just look at the back of the box uh, when you first get the game and never look at it again. Oh, yeah. Now, what I typically do is I give you your spoilery story recap. Mother of God. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, lads. This is a lot. The game is pretty heavy on story, so please do bear with me while I try and do this in as concise a manner as possible, if that's possible. We'll we'll see, I suppose. Mm. So whilst this is the first game in the Metal Gear Solid series, it is the third game in the Metal Gear series. Now, I am certain we'll get to those other games, but not today. So to give you a super quick recap of the first two Metal Gears, 
uh, and I suppose remember the names I mention here. Like I'm, I'm going to mention the things that happened in the first two Metal Gears that are relevant to the story of Metal Gear Solid. So in the original Metal Gear, it's discovered that there's a WMD being housed in a place called Outer Heaven, somewhere near South Africa. A special forces unit called Foxhound send their top man, Grey Fox, in to stop the threat. But Fox goes dark during the mission, which is why the head of Foxhound, Big Boss, sends new recruit Solid Snake in to investigate. Snake finds Fox, who tells Snake that... Uh, Fox has discovered a bipedal tank that has nuclear strike launching capabilities called Metal Gear. Outer Heaven wants to use Metal Gear. I'm only going to do that once. Outer Heaven (laughs) wants to use Metal Gear to become a world superpower because they're baddies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Long story short, Snake destroys Metal Gear and discovers that the man behind all of this was Big Boss. Oh my God. Snake kills Big Boss and escapes Outer Heaven and that's that. Metal Gear 2 then sees new Foxhound commander, Roy Campbell, send Solid Snake into Zanzibar land, which is a country in uh, Central Asia. Because there's a group here that is holding a doctor called Dr. Keo Marv hostage. Dr. Marv is important because he's come up with a new source of oil for the world because the world's supply of oil is running out. I mean, yeah, like <laughs> us as well, you know. We'll fast forward. Snake learns the folks on Zanzibar land are building a new Metal Gear and Big Boss is still alive. Oh my God. Fast forward again. Snake <laughs> destroys Metal Gear D, which is the new Metal Gear, and Metal Gear's pilot, none other than his old pal, Grey Fox. Oh, the twists, my God. The game then finishes with a Snake meeting Big Boss while he's leaving Zanzibar land. So Snake kills him, uh, sets him on, on, burns him alive, I think, and then rides off into the sunset. Now, I'm disregarding later games that might change the story a bit for this section. This is the Metal Gear story up to the end of Metal Gear 2. Now, that's your intro to the story of Metal Gear Solid. So the story of Metal Gear Solid, again, spoilery, all right? The aforementioned Special Forces group, Foxhound, has gone rogue and they have taken over an island off Alaska called Shadow Moses. The reason being is that there are nuclear weapons here and they plan to use a new Metal Gear, Metal Gear Rex, to launch those nukes against America unless they receive $1 billion and the remains of Big Boss. Lovely. So Solid Snake's old Foxhound commander, Colonel Roy Campbell, coaxes Snake out of retirement in order to stop Foxhound. I'll just explain the members of Foxhound now so you you have an idea. So you have Decoy Octopus, who is a master of disguise, Sniper Wolf, a deadly but sexy sniper, Psycho Mantis, (laughs) the psychic one, Uh, Vulcan Raven, this burly shaman, Uh, Revolver Ocelot, a man who can spin guns around very quickly in his fingers, and Liquid Snake, the leader. So Snake infiltrates the facility and he gets a call off an old foxhound buddy called Master Miller who has cool sunglasses and he just chats to Snake on the phone every now and again. He's a cool guy. Anyway, I don't know why I'm mentioning that. Anyway, Snake meets with a hostage called Donald Anderson, the DARPA chief. Anderson tells Snake that Metal Gear can be deactivated with a special code. But then, out of nowhere, Anderson mysteriously dies of a heart attack. At this point, Snake meets Meryl Silverberg, who was also being held hostage, and she's also the niece of Snake's handler, Roy Campbell. Snake then has a run-in with Rodver Ocelot, has a bit of a shootout, and then a flipping ninja rushes in and chops off Ocelot's hand, his arm, the whole thing. After that, 
Snake then chats to another guy, uh, the arms tech president, Kenneth Baker, who is, I know I'm throwing names at you, but you know, it's fine, who is seemingly, Baker seemingly about to tell Snake something very important, but then he dies in mysterious fashion, just like the DARPA chief, Donald Anderson. What's going on? <laughs> Snake then meets up with Metal Gear Rex's designer, Dr. Hal Otacon Emmerich, when out of nowhere, the ninja who chopped off Ocelot's arm has a bit of a fight with Snake. It's after said fight the Snake realises that ninja is the presumed dead grey fox. <gasps> wow. Otacon <laughs> decides to help Snake when he comes to the conclusion that designing a nuclear missile launching robot might have been the best idea. Um, <laughs> Snake then meets up with Merrill and he gets a current key that will deactivate Metal Gear. But then the two of them run into Foxhound's psychic operative, Psychomantis. Snake kills him after he plugs his controller into the second port. It's quite handy. Then, on their way to Metal Gear, Merrill is shot by Sniper Wolf and Snake is captured and tortured by Liquid and Revolver Ocelot. It's also here where Snake learns that him and Liquid are brothers, which... I, I mean, you know, the clue was in the name, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Snake is held in a cell and Otacon helps him escape from the cell, which is quite nice of Otacon. I'm trying to push along here. But then Snake <laughs> blows up a helicopter and he faces off against Sniper Wolf. He kills her. This makes Otacon very sad because he fancied her. She barely knew he existed. It's a regular <laughs> love story. Beautiful. Snake then continues on. He battles and kills Vulcan Raven. But before Raven died... Raven revealed that the uh, Donald Anderson that Snake saw die of a heart attack was actually Fox, Foxhound's master of disguise, Decoy Octopus. Mm. Snake eventually then gets to where Metal Gear Rex is being housed and he uses his key card to deactivate the Metal Gear. It's three times. We, we might talk about this later, but yeah, there's room temperature, cold temperature, hot temperature. Blah. But oh no, Snake has actually activated Metal Gear rather than deactivated it. The fool. Also, remember that cool Master Miller guy? Well, it was actually Liquid Snake in sunglasses and his hair tied back in a ponytail. He tricked Snake. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> this is when Liquid tells Solid Snake that both of them are a product of the Les Enfants Terribles project, <laughs> which was a government program to clone the best soldier ever, Big Boss. Liquid also reveals that the mysterious deaths of Decoy Octopus and Kenneth Baker were caused by a virus called Fox Die. And Fox Die, as Liquid tells it, is a virus that the government has injected into the members of Foxhound and eventually they're all going to die from it. So, including Solid Snake. Liquid then hops into Metal Gear and during a fight with Snake, the ninja, Grey Fox, shows up and helps Snake by destroying a part of Metal Gear. But that makes Liquid cross, so he just squashes Grey Fox with his big robot foot. It's not very nice. Eventually, Snake destroys Metal Gear. Um, then him and his brother Liquid have quite a sexy uh, fist fight on top of Metal Gear. <laughs> uh, and then there's a car chase between the two brothers while they're escaping uh, the facility. And then both cars crash, and just when it seems like Liquid is going to kill Snake, Liquid dies of a fox die heart attack. Then... Snake rides off on a snowmobile with either Otcon or Meryl because the game has two endings so it depends on what you've done and Snake says that he's going to start living, damn it. The end. I think you did very well to just give them the pertinent stuff they need for today and then in future episodes we will contradict about eight of the things you've said. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the people behind this game are one and the same in... 
some ways. So yeah, the developer and publisher, it's all Konami. Or if you want, the publisher is Konami and the developer specifically was Konami Computer Entertainment Japan. So I'm going to give you a bit of a bio on both Konami's publisher as well as the team that made Metal Gear Solid. And of course, you'll forgive me as always for getting through decades of publisher history in a fairly brief manner. There's, there's a lot with Konami. Like, they are, I think, off the top of my head, Maybe the oldest publisher we've talked about. They were founded in March 1969. Oh, wow. However, as is often the case with, say, Ubisoft and their farming, Square Enix and their tabloid newspapers, (laughs) Konami wasn't in gaming from the off. No, initially, it was a jukebox repair and rental business. Oh, wow. In 1973, the three founding members, Kagemasa Kazuki, Yoshinobu Nakama and Tatsuyo Miyasako established Konami and then the company and the three lads were off to the races. They began manufacturing arcade machines and they were doing very well. But it wasn't until the 80s when Konami started developing and publishing their own games. And that's when things went into another gear for them. Their first big hit was in 1981, Frogger. Oh, wow. What a game. As of 2005, it's estimated that 20 million copies of its home console versions have been sold. But that obviously doesn't account for any of the money they made off people just sticking coins in arcade machines, you know. Oh, yeah. To blast through a few more. In 83, you have Qbert and Track and Field. In 85, you have Gradius. In 86, you have Contra. In 1982, then, the company opened up a US office and also started making some video games for home consoles like the Atari 2600, MSX, and of course, the Nintendo Entertainment System. But it was at this point, a lot of Konami games were launching both on console and in arcades as well. So they were kind of doing twofers. Some of the bigger games already mentioned did this. And you can add things like, say, Castlevania and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to the list as well. Apparently, in fact, between 1987 and 1991, Konami's earnings went from $10 million to $300 million. Adjacent to the Turtles, Konami did pump out quite a lot of uh, licensed stuff in this time, some more successful than others. And then once the PlayStation and Saturn arrived, that's when we got games like Suikoden in 95, the RPG, the beloved RPG, and... The football series, Winning Eleven, or better known over here as International Superstar Soccer, which obviously would become Pro Evolution, which then would become, sadly, eFootball. That is a very quick rundown of Konami's history as a publisher up until the launch of Metal Gear Solid. Skipping over all of the Metal Gear stuff, obviously. So now, the developer of Metal Gear Solid. So, like with any other internal studio that effectively uses the same name as the publisher, it's hard to find out exactly what the team worked on. But I do have a bit of info, I suppose, when it comes to Konami Computer Entertainment Japan. So, Konami set up this internal studio in April 1996, but we do have to go back a little before that to look at the history of Metal Gear Solid. Not Metal Gear or Metal Gear 2, just we're talking 1998's Metal Gear Solid. Now, I could have even debated this. Like, I'm hesitant to just make this a profile piece on director, producer, writer of Metal Gear Solid, Hideo Kojima. Uh, Like, these little developer profiles. These are typically about the studios and the people within these studios uh, during these time frames. But I do think some bit of info on the man often credited with being Mr. Metal Gear is probably worthwhile. 
So one thing to understand is that from a very young age, Hideo Kojima loved movies and filmmaking. Watching films was a family activity. And he and his friend would make short little films on this 8mm camcorder that his friend had. And they'd, they'd charge their friends then to watch what they had filmed. He wanted to make films professionally. Shock horror, I know, you'd be surprised. But as he told The Guardian in an interview from May 2012, quote, There were no film schools near where I lived. And beyond that, the budgets for Japanese films at that time were very low. So I didn't think I'd be able to make the kind of films I was interested in. Kojima went on to study economics then in university, but the dream wasn't dead. He kept up creative pursuits in his downtime. Kojima told The Guardian, quote, I wrote novels in my spare time while studying. Even this pursuit is related to film, as I wanted to win awards for my novels and thought that if that happened, perhaps I'd get the chance to make a movie. It was around that time that I saw that Nintendo's Famicom for the first time. Immediately, it struck me that this might be another route into making film-like experiences. Kojima went looking for work and he settled on Konami. His reasoning is probably not what you're thinking, or it may not be what you're thinking. Kojima said, quote, I settled on Konami not because of the type of games they were making at the time, but rather because they were listed on the stock exchange. They were the only games company to be listed at the time. Not even Nintendo had that accolade. I guess it was a status thing, but I thought working for a company like that might help people to view my vocation in a more positive light. So I'm, I'm going to fast forward past his first few games. His very first game, which was cancelled, uh, that game and the Metal Gear games pre-Solid will be discussed sometime down the line when we look at those games. There's enough to be talking about with Metal Gear Solid. This will be a pretty fast tour through a few games as we're still pre-Konami Computer Entertainment Japan here. So we pick things up in 1988 when Konami launched uh, Snatcher, which was a Blade Runner-inspired cyberpunk adventure game created by Kojima. Snatcher wasn't a huge financial success, but it definitely garnered enough fans to call for ports, a remake, and even a radio play. So, you know, Mm. did all right. Then in 94, Kojima's next game would come out, Police Notes, which was another sci-fi adventure game. Police Notes took four years to make, and when it launched, critics largely praised it. And they largely praised its clear filmic influence as well. I know I blew through them, but again, they weren't technically made by the same developer. There's a lot of crossover in terms of personnel, of course, but look, we go on. So, when does the third Metal Gear game, also kind of a fourth Metal Gear game, because there was another Metal Gear game released in America that Kojima wasn't involved in, (laughs) but that's opening a whole can of worms that I don't want to unpack today. (laughs) So we'll call this the third Metal Gear game. So when does the idea for this Metal Gear Solid come about? Well, after Police Knots is ported to the 3DO, Kojima gets thinking that maybe it's time to bring back Metal Gear, utilising the power of this fancy new system. 3DO obviously doesn't set the world alight, which is why Metal Gear ends up focusing uh or the metal gear team i should say ends up focusing on the new sony playstation from around 94 to 96 the mgs team is figuring out what's possible with this new console it's also when kojima hires an artist who worked with him on police knots called yoji shinkawa shinkawa would be instrumental in creating some of the most famous concept art and character designs in video game history but two years after the initial thought of a third metal gear pops into the head of Kojima, Konami establishes the developer, Konami Computer Entertainment Japan, and Kojima's team approximately triples in size to around 30 or so. 
So it's time for them to make Metal Gear Solid. Art director Yoji Shinkawa spoke to Game Informer in February 2014 for a video called Yoji Shinkawa's Life with Metal Gear Solid. And in that interview, he recounted his very first job, which was to create a 3D Metal Gear. He said, quote, I was just told by Mr. Kojima to design a Metal Gear. So I was working in pencil and paper. This was my very first Java computer language job I got assigned. And I had a very hard time putting it together. So I was told to try and create a model rather than putting it on pencil and paper. So the first thing that other team members saw for me wasn't necessarily my drawn art, but the model I created. And I think they were rather satisfied. I myself was satisfied. In an interview then, in 1998, with PlayStation Magazine in Japan, which is translated by Shmopulations, which is something I used loads, so... Good work on the translation, smopulations. Uh, Hideo Kojima spoke a bit about what he wanted from Shinkawa's design for Metal Gear Rex. Kojima said, quote, I told Shinkawa, don't make it look like some robot from outer space. I had a huge number of specific requests. For instance, I said I wanted it to feel like when the human pilot gets in, that life is being breathed into the mech for the first time. Like, even though it's a weapon, when it moves, it should feel like a living creature. But when the pilot exits and it's left alone, it just looks like a jeep or tank or some regular vehicle. And once the pilot gets in and is driving it, it looks like a dinosaur. And the aesthetic, the feeling that it evokes when you see it, should not be outer spacey. We'll have a bit more from that interview later, which really outlines Shinkawa's influence on the game even more. Like, it's it's mad, really. Another job, of course, was designing a new 3D solid snake. Initially, Kojima was thinking of a more grizzled veteran, but as Shinkawa told Edge in an interview in June 1997, quote, We did not believe his original design to be good for the game's commercial potential, so we redrew him. So... Uh, The story goes, the brief from Kojima for this version of Snake would have the body of Jean-Claude Van Damme and the face of Christopher Walken. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent, that. (laughs) As has been mentioned numerous times already, and even just now, Kojima was very much inspired by movies and a lot of Western movies. So translating the game to English would be pivotal if the team wanted it to be a success overseas, obviously. That's where a man called Jeremy Blaustein came in. So he was responsible for translating Metal Gear Solid's original Japanese script into English. And in an article he wrote for Polygon in July 2019 called The Bizarre True Story of Metal Gear Solid's English Translation, Blaustein said he had less than a year to translate the entire game. Blaustein said, quote, I'd never taken on a job of this size before. I was not experienced enough yet to know that I should have arranged a payment schedule with Konami so that I would get paid each month for hitting certain deadlines. Instead, I had no income for seven to eight months. I was to be paid the full amount when the entire job was finished. And so we were starving poor as I worked full time on Metal Gear Solid. The job had me on edge to the point that I was taking diazepam, commonly known as Valium, to handle the stress. The article is fantastic, to be honest, but in it, he spoke about having to localise elements, uh, obviously, as certain phrases and whatnot don't translate one-to-one from Japanese to English, but Kojima wasn't keen on his work being changed whatsoever, apparently. Blaustein said, quote, From what I heard at the time, Kojima began to hear that his work had been tinkered with. I'd argue there might have been a lack of appreciation for the needs of localization due to his not being bilingual, but he was not happy. As a result, 
all future Metal Gear games would be closely monitored for fidelity to the original Japanese script. Keeping it on that topic a little bit, the English language voice actors who would give life to Kojima's words and Blaustein's localization spoke to Game Informer in March 2016 for their in-depth video interview, The Inside Story of Recording Metal Gear Solid. There's a ton of interesting little tidbits in that. Like, you have Christopher Randolph, who plays Otacon, He auditioned for the role of Solid Snake, apparently. The actors were playing off each other in the studio. They weren't recording their lines separately. And when David Hayter found out he got the role of Solid Snake, he was at a house where his friends, the Counting Crows, were recording an album. (laughs) Which I thoroughly enjoy Solid Snake as friends with the lads who did Big Yellow Taxi. One thing I thought worth pointing out, even though we're talking about the 1998 version, For the 2004 GameCube remake of Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes, all the dialogue was re-recorded by the cast. Now, the casting and voice director, Chris Zimmerman Salter, told Game Informer that she believed re-recording had something to do with union rules. She said, quote, So, when you take something from one project and put it into another project, there's a certain price that has to be paid. So it ended up being financially better off for them to redo it. David Hayter told Game Informer that Metal Gear Solid wasn't even the biggest life-altering thing that happened to him at this time. Hayter said, quote, It's weird because I got Metal Gear, and then the next year I ended up writing the movie X-Men, so that changed my entire life. I didn't have to be an actor anymore. I still love being an actor, but I didn't have to bang my head against a wall and try to get parts and try to survive. Suddenly I had money and I was writing big movies. So Metal Gear became my one acting outlet. I said, I'll keep doing that, but I won't do anything else. For Hater though, the concept of the game, as well as Kojima's writing, were big draws to the part of Solid Snake. And in an episode of Icons on the American TV channel G4, which aired in October 2004, Hater said, quote, Theoretically, I believe, apart from the bosses, you can get through the whole game without killing anybody. So I thought that was interesting from a gameplay perspective, but I also thought it was interesting from a morality perspective. When you have a great director take on a movie, you know it really has that tone to it. When Quentin Tarantino does a movie, it has that tone to it. Well, when Hideo Kojima does a game, uh, you feel it. I mean, he has a very specific view of storytelling and gameplay and how those two should interact. I knew that there wasn't anything like it, and I knew that if we did it well, it would be huge. Of course, his thoughts on Kojima, slightly different now, I think, ever since Kiefer Sutherland was cast in the role of Metal Gear Solid 5, but that's definitely a story for another time. Mm. So, at Tokyo Game Show 1996, Metal Gear Solid was revealed to the public and then it got its Western unveiling at E3 1997. And at E3 1997, Kojima said people were so enraptured by the trailer that they forgot to go home. Kojima said, <laughs> quote, All we did was show a trailer and what happened was that the same people that were there in the morning at E3 were there in the evening. They were just watching it all day long. Couldn't peel themselves away. And look, we, we have to stop this bio somewhere. I could obviously go on for hours more, but we'll leave it there. Plus, I have to leave some quotes for the pre-launch marketing and press coverage section and blah, blah, blah. So that is the story of Konami and Konami Computer Entertainment Japan up until the launch of Metal Gear Solid. So sales then. Did this game do well? Yeah, it did all right. In America, 
Apparently, in 1998 alone, remembering that it launched in late October, Metal Gear Solid sold over 1 million copies and generated over $50 million. It was the fifth best-selling PlayStation game of the year in the States, one place above Crash Bandicoot 2 and one place below Madden NFL 99. In the UK, the game, as mentioned, launched in February of um, 1999 and it became the third best-selling game of the year across all platforms one place above Gran Turismo and one place below Driver overall as of 2005 the most recent figures I found on the internet tell me that the original Metal Gear Solid has sold over 7 million copies worldwide again since 2005 I'm sure it's more I'm sure when the collection comes out it'll be more blah 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 but speaking to Jeff Keighley in 2014, Hideo Kojima said, quote, neither I nor anyone else expected Metal Gear Solid to sell at all. So I was fortunate because I didn't have to think I have to sell this game this much. So pretty much all I did was put in that game all the things I really like. I didn't think at all of how to make the game sell well because I didn't expect it to sell well. But it did. Did all right. And... Critically, it did okay as well. So the critical reception of Metal Gear Solid on PlayStation, it has a Metacritic score of 94, and on PC, it has a Metacritic score of 83. And that is your Metal Gear Solid back of the box. So what we're going to do here is we are going to take a quick break, and then we are going to talk about some marketing and press coverage of Metal Gear Solid. But you, dear listener we'll get to hear a little bit of the Metal Gear Solid TGS 1996 reveal trailer and specifically kind of the, the Metal Gear Solid theme song. We'll come back after the break to talk about that and loads of other MGS goodness. So yeah, we'll be back in just a tick. Okay then, let us chat about more Metal Gear Solidness. But firstly, some pre-launch marketing. How were Konami trying to hype this game before it came out? And the first thing I wanted to talk about was what the listener heard, or a portion of what the listener heard, uh, the Metal Gear Solid TGS 1996 reveal trailer. So this would have been somewhere between the 22nd of August and the 24th of August, 1996 what did you think because it's it's obviously if you're not familiar with this trailer it is quite jarring because it looks quite different to yeah the metal gear solid that we know now it has none none of the tone at all it's more of a kind of i feel this trailer is more for like like look what we're after designing Mm. but like the tone i just don't think it doesn't exist at all unlike the other a uh, few trailers that we'll discuss in a while. There is some scuttlebutt as to whether what's in this trailer is from a cancelled 3DO version. Yeah. Or whether this is just a non-playable CG trailer and it's like, oh, this is what it will look like in the end. What strikes me about it is that they they seem to, like, even at this early stage, there's kind of like a, a bit of an awareness that this is at least something 
a bit special or, or, or something worth marketing the hell out of. Do you know, it reminds me of the, you know, the Tomb Raider stuff we were talking about where they did a making of thing for the trailer. <laughs> it's a little bit like that with the sort of shots in the studio and you see the artists working away. It's kind of like a, hey, look at us. This thing's absolutely bonkers. Before we even mm. hype you about the game itself, let's, can we hype you about the process of making it? Like, yeah, it's sort of state of the art shit going down. You know, it's like. <laughs> the people just got to hear a bit of that original Metal Gear Solid theme composed by. Japanese composer Tappy and I don't know I suppose maybe like a lot of Metal Gear Solid or pe- people who've played Metal Gear Solid games like it, it's it's that second that Sons of Liberty theme by Harry Gregson Williams that's more orchestral and bigger that I think of when I think of the Metal Gear Solid theme yeah it isn't this one even though like it's notation and it, it's the same s- it's the same song. It's the same, like, you know, mm. but it's more paired back, I suppose. W- Williams mm. did sort of knock it out the part. He had a great thing to build from, but it, it feels very different, doesn't it? Then, of course, yeah, another trailer. This was the first time the game was rolled out in front of Western audiences. It was on the 20th of June, 1997. This is the Metal Gear Solid E3 1997 trailer. See, this is a weird one because... At the end of it, Solid Snake just explodes the shit out of everything with C4. <laughs> it's really action-packed, isn't it? I sort of want to show that to David Hater and sort of say, like, you know how he was sort of going on about, oh, he's actually really peaceful and you, you don't have, you have to kill anyone. I just want to go, have a load of this, David. <laughs> just blow everything. <laughs> there were a few other Japan-focused trailers. Like, there was one for Tokyo Game Show 1998, it was basically like the lo- the longer, more cinematic trailer that would become synonymous with Metal Gear Solid. It's my favourite trailer. That is like the one, yeah. If you go to reveal trailer, it's just, as I said, it is what it is. But then the ninety the 97 trailer, then it is all just action-packed. And then this one is like giving a bit more of like what this story is kind of going for and things like that. But um, oh, I love it. I think the tone is set there. So there was a couple of television ads for Metal Gear Solid (laughs) and the first one I have here and I'm kind of guessing I presume this aired in October 1998 because this ad includes quotes from reviews for Metal Gear Solid from a couple of magazines you've quotes from EGM uh, official PlayStation magazine Next Generation magazine but yeah this was a a TV ad that aired for Metal Gear Solid so take a listen to this The critics agree Metal Gear Solid is an absolute masterpiece. Games just don't look any better than this. The best reason yet to own a PlayStation. Metal Gear Solid by Konami. The audio is great when you hear that one fell in the back one. It is good. It is good. So that's an ad that tells you a bit about the game and I guess how it's been received. And, you know, it's really kind of bigging it up and you get gameplay as well. That's what you, you see. Now I have an ad that tells you pretty much nothing about the game. This is bit odd. So this ad does definitely lose a little without visuals, but I'll tell you, dear listener, what to imagine is... 
uh, uh, you're listening to the audio. So the setup for this is that there's an army commander type talking to a wannabe soldier in this kind of uh, gr- kind of dimly lit classroom. Then the army commander lad uh, has the wannabe army recruit do silly things like hop over a small uh, like a training cone like a football training cone he has him open an umbrella splash about a paddling pool do a bit of pogoing on a pogo stick I think there's some hula hooping in there as well and then the recruit finishes by tapping their head and rubbing their belly at the same time so just imagine all of that while you hear this listen up This is an extremely sensitive covert operation. You'll be one man against an entire squad of high-tech special ops. They will be armed, and they will be dangerous. If you want to survive, you gotta have brains. You have to be in peak physical condition. You have to have nerves of steel. The fate of the free world is in your hands, soldier. Failure is not an option. Sir, aren't these tests kind of easy? Suicide mission. Oh. Another little scream at the end there. Like, genuinely, I don't think there's any gameplay in that whatsoever. It's pure mood. There was another telly ad, but uh, honestly, it has even less to do with the game than the army one. So there's not not much point in talking about it too much. But uh, the ad is just somebody being rushed to hospital on a gurney. There's nothing to us. It has nothing to do with Metal Gear Solid. It's so weird. I guess games of the time, you know, talking about telly ads, brilliant. Another thing is we have ads that appeared in magazines and this one is an absolute delight. So this double page ad appeared in EGM Electronic Gaming Monthly number 113 in December 1998. And this ad was in the form of one of the, it was an interactive advertisement. (laughs) It's an A question aptitude test type of thing, right? So there are questions like which one is not a covert operative. And then there are four pictures and it, it's like A, Snake, B, Merrill, C, Sherlock Holmes, D, Kenneth Baker. And then when you turn the magazine upside down, you get the answers to all the questions. And the answer to that question is D, Kenneth Baker is no stinking spy. He's the president of Arms Tech and the biggest SOB in the world. My personal favourite, of course, is question seven, yeah. which is... Sweaty palms and rapid heart rate are symptoms of blank. And then you get multiple choice again. Multiple choice options are A, sexy lady in a bikini. <laughs> B, an M mature ESRB rating. C, I think... Are they like night vision goggles, yeah? I think they're night vision goggles, but it's weird because it was pre-Splinter Cell. But anyway, and D, a picture of the Metal Gear Solid front cover. And the answer to this question is D, Playing Metal Gear Solid may cause all sorts of titillating <laughs> physiological side effects. Again, it's sort of like that C4 explosion. It's like, this isn't capturing the tone of the game at all. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Like, I am a sucker for an interactive advert. That's the best kind of advert, surely. <laughs> um, so that is your marketing for Metal Gear Solid. So now let us look at some a pre-launch press coverage. And I was able to unearth a lot. And again... Thanks to, in large part, to a website called Schmopulations, which has translated a lot of the Japanese interviews that were done hyping up Metal Gear Solid. So this first interview is, uh, or it was in an issue of Famitsu in early 1997. 
and it's just I don't know I don't know what they were called in the magazine but Smutbulations just calls it Metal Gear Solid 1997 interview and in this the interviewer said that Metal Gear Solid reminded them of the they're talking to Kojima I should say but the interviewer said to Kojima that Metal Gear Solid reminded them of the original Resident Evil and Hideo Kojima in response to this said quote yeah I understand that uh, there may be some visual resemblance there. As a game, though, Metal Gear Solid is an entirely different type of terror. Uh, Resident Evil is splatter horror, and the fear that uh, the fear is created by the zombies rushing at you. In Metal Gear, you have the tension of having to perform all these manoeuvres and the fear of being discovered by the enemy. Uh, the essence of that fear may be closer to Clock Tower 2 than Resident Evil, I think. Uh, after Vision, the second most important kind of tension I wanted to create was audio. Uh, actually, when I've played survival games in the past, it's been the sound that's imparted the greatest sense of tension. When you hear the sound, for example, of dead leaves being crunched underfoot, but you don't know where it's coming from. Nothing else inspires such dread. All you can do is hide. I wanted to pick that kind of fear and suspense in Metal Gear Solid. And that uh, Resident Evil comparison did come up quite a bit in my research. In an interview with PlayStation Power, uh, issue number 24, which was in March 1998, Kojima said, quote, Most people seem to see Resident Evil 2 as the closest competitor to Metal Gear Solid. Considering the market, I suppose it's possible that the games could be construed as rivals. Personally, I think there's little similarity. I like to think that MGS is closer to Zelda in many respects. Alright, relax a small bit. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of, oh, you get a key card and that key card can open and a, up. A, a string of bosses that, uh, you know, maybe that that's a bit more like Zelda. Mind you, Re- Re- Rezzy has bosses as well. It just sounds like he just doesn't want the game compared to Rezzy. Basically, <laughs> yeah. <just> like, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there are comparisons. We'll talk about the camera later on. Kojima also spoke about the struggles of going from 2D to 3D in this interview and having issues with the environments. He said that they were using Lego to see what kind of maps they could actually create in the game. Kojima said, quote, Right now, we're trying to use toy blocks to model the buildings and bases. The reason why we're going to the trouble of actually modelling them this way is that the 3D model reveals things to you that are hard to see in 2D. The first-person perspective mode, you can access that any time to see exactly what Snake is seeing. When I was playing around with it, I noticed irregularities, like you should be able to see a door here, but it's obscured by a column. In order to better identify those things, we're building the structures with blocks and then using a CCD, a tiny camera, to peer inside them. There is a cool video that Famitsu did. Uh, I don't know when it came out, but I think it was like, it was 98. Mm. And it was on a disc called Famitsu Wave Sukangu Volume 1. What it was, was that uh, they would they would have discs on the magazine with like demos and videos and whatnot. And... One was of a behind the scenes on Metal Gear Solid. They're, they're speaking Japanese, so I have no idea what's being said, so I don't have any clips or anything like that. But it's really interesting viewing because it shows what he's talking about there with the Lego models. And it shows a bit of, the, of them going to America and kind of doing SWAT team research, which we'll talk about in a second. But the Lego stuff I thought was, was really cool. Like them 
getting an idea. It's it's this new thing that they're trying to wrap their head around. And the best way for them was to build a physical space. And then, yeah, the camera becomes the game camera. It is, it is really cool. I love that idea of finding out, you know, is this a workable 3D space? Should I be able to poke my head around that corner and see, well, I don't know, let's build the bloody thing and then think about putting it into a game. I wonder if it still works similarly these days. It's really interesting. So then in November 1997, in a magazine called Game Fan, and it was volume five, issue 11. So this is what I just mentioned about the SWAT team. Hideo Kojima was being interviewed and uh, he was being asked about the team travelling to America to see real SWAT teams in action in order to get a look at their tactics so that then the team could implement their tactics in the game. So Kojima said, quote, We had previously only seen SWAT teams in movies, books and television. Seeing the actual SWAT teams in action, I realised how very different they are from those portrayals and how difficult it would be to create real SWAT action in a game. I think the action Metal Gear Solid falls right in the middle between the real SWAT and the entertainment SWAT. While working on Metal Gear, I've been trying to maintain a balance between actual reality and that fake cinematic reality. Of course, famously, we see lads in SWAT teams running for the toilets because they have the shits. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he's saying, that, you know, yeah. cinema and, you know, etc. You've got to have fun with it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then in a Japanese publication, PlayStation magazine, an interview with Kojima and Yoji Shinkawa from 1998. Again, this was translated by Shmopulations. Shinkawa spoke about how he drew the cyborg ninja because he wanted to. Kojima did not ask for it. But then Kojima said, you know what? Let's put this ninja in the game and we'll say it's Grey Fox. So Shinkawa said, quote, I thought he'd just be a normal soldier enemy. I had a number of different patterns in mind, and I thought I'd try drawing something cyborgish. Uh, and this ninja-looking guy is what came out. Once I gave him a katana, the character really came to life for me. I thought, hey, this could actually work as a main character. And then continuing on from that then, in the same interview, Kojima said Shinkawa had more influence on other characters as well. So Kojima said, quote, The Otakon character had silly beginnings too. He's the developer of this Metal Gear Rex weapon, and I like Japanese animation, so I wanted to include a character who goes to anime conventions like otaku in America. The image in my head was of a heavier guy, someone who's always eating a chocolate bar, but somewhere (laughs) along the way he turned out as the character in the game. Psycho Mantis has psychic powers, but at some point Shinkawa gave him that gas mask. I wasn't against adding them. Unexpected things like this are part of the fun. You know, if you like Metal Gear Solid, you recognise his art and it's kind of so famous and so entrenched, so tied to Metal Gear Solid. So important to Kojima's like sort of legacy, really. Shinkawa's artwork is everything, the sort of visual design. So then an article published on the 19th of November, 1998, to the best of my research, an article in PlayStation Magazine in Japan. This one was translated by the Ark Hound. And the article was called The Strangeness of Naming. And Hideo Kojima was asked why all the people in the villainous group Foxhound have animal names. He said, quote, No particular reason at all. Americans tend to like that sort of thing. 
but usually they tend to pick poisonous animals like a cobra. Are I even a clue to be honest? Uh, the Americans <laughs> love it, though. <laughs> he, he did say the Solid Snake's name has some meaning to it, though. Uh, Kojima said, quote, Solid Snake's name does have a significance. A snake is a fluid creature, while solid means something that is uncorrupted or a hard object. In other words, a solid snake is a contradiction in adjective. It's something that originally didn't exist, like a stiff, flexible object or a frozen jelly. So, you know, Vulcan Raven or Sniper Wolf, whatever, but solid snake. That's There's real meaning there, so dig in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then in uh, an issue of Computer and Video Games magazine, just an article titled Metal Gear Solid Team Interview. And I presume, I'm having to guess with this, that this was from an issue in late 98, early 99. It seems like from the way it's written, it's before it launched in the UK. Sound director Kazuki Muaoka, speaking about the English voice acting and Hollywood movies, uh, he said, quote, We have grown up under the influence of Western movies and music. And whenever we hear English from the monitor, even if it is not James Bond, but Austin Powers, we think this is cool. And I believe the English in Metal Gear Solid is cool, awesome and wicked. I hope people in, in the UK enjoy it too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sorry. I just think, <laughs> cool, awesome, wicked. Do you think those were his exact words? Cool, awesome and wicked. <laughs> oh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But yeah, that is your pre-launch press coverage and your pre-launch marketing for Metal Gear Solid. So we are going to take a quick break and then we are going to be back to tell you our opinions of this very game. So we are going to be back right after this lovely musical interlude. So now it is time to tell you our opinions of Metal Gear Solid. But as is standard, just before we do that, we need to tell you our knowledge of the game before we played it for this very podcast. So, Adam Carroll, why don't you start us off? How did you first hear of Metal Gear Solid or did, had you heard of it before? Was it like a dark situation where you were like, what is this game? <laughs> I definitely knew of the game, but it came from the the playing for the first time was the demo that came with ISS Pro 98. Now, I have no interest in football and <laughs> I bought that game and it was excellent and that demo came with it and it was even better again. So... <laughs> It was an all-round great purchase. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't own ISS Pro 98. I, I rented it uh, and I played the demo as well in that. I definitely played a demo of it that came with official PlayStation magazine as well. I, I had been reading about Metal Gear Solid for quite a while. I definitely played a demo in OPM as well. But I think the first time would have been ISS Pro 98. Might be getting my timelines mixed up a little bit. But yeah, it was the demo and I was like, wow, you can crouch under a pipe and crawl. <laughs> this is next gen. Uh, Josh, what about you? I did not get it in any in demo. Thing. It was all word of mouth. And you know what? It was when we were, it's the staggered release. We were sort of saying earlier, because these things back then, it doesn't really happen these days, but back then 
you know, it's out in America like months before. So there's magazine. It was a real Metal Gear Solid one was a real, a real magazine game. It's just looking at screenshots and, and your mates would be chatting. Do you remember when kids just used to lie about stuff and just sort of, just say mad, mad stuff that's definitely wasn't in the magazine. Like they'd be like, oh yeah, you can, you can fly a jet and blow it, you know, just like weird lies. And you don't even know why kids tell them it was that, that was what was going on with Metal Gear Solid one. By the time I actually played the game, it was such a, like a kind of legendary thing. Um, I wouldn't say it was underwhelming, but I remember being quite sort of, uh, oh, okay. Th- all right. This is what this game is. There's, there's none of that stuff. So. Yeah, bit of an awakening for me. But it was 25 years ago, so there may be some people listening who aren't aware of what it actually is. So, Metal Gear Solid is a third-person action-adventure stealth video game. I think that pretty much sums it up. And as protagonist, Solid Snake, you are mostly travelling from A to B in this one large open area. It's not separated out into levels. There is some scope for backtracking for items and the like, but I, you know, I wouldn't call this a Metroidvania or anything. When you're not punching and shooting enemies, which you do quite a bit, you can hide from them around corners, in cardboard boxes, underneath desks, and you use your minimap radar to see what your enemies are looking at, which we will discuss more. N- now, actually, we're going to do that right now. <laughs> so, what we usually do for our reviews is we separate the game up into different segments we first talk about the stealth then we talk about the game's boom boom which is just kind of it's more explosive bits and it's other gameplay bits as well really Uh, we talk about the mission leveler area that stood out to us and we talk about the story and of course i suppose i should say we hoover up any other little bits at the end in a miscellaneous section where if any of us have anything to add that doesn't fit into any of the other categories we put it at the end so firstly the stealth of Metal Gear Solid. And as I made reference to, the first thing I wanted to talk about, and know all of us wanted to talk about, is the radar. The Soliton radar. And listen, radars and, well, I guess, yeah, they're not called radars. They're called mini-maps now. They are commonplace. But unless either of you can correct me, I want to say that Snake's radar... It's, I'm not saying it's the first, I'm not saying anything like that, but you know, it's a big deal. I mean, it's so big in 1998 that Mei Ling, who is a character in the game who's like, she's just part of your team. She actually saves your game in, you know, real terms. Um, but Mei, Mei Ling has to explain how this works to the player and how I will explain to you, dear listener. So it's in the top right of the screen. There's this little box And in the box, it shows you what's happening in the game world. So you can see green outlines of objects in the environment. You you see yourself as a little white dot and you see your enemies as red dots with blue cones of vision. So basically, if you walk into that enemy cone, you've alerted the guards. And despite how this game is heralded as one of the stealth games of 1998 or just kind of ever, I suppose, really, in terms of its influence and um, the, the reverence that people have for it. It's actually not the most complex system. Like, even if you compare it to some of the other games we have spoken about that launched that year, like, say, Tenchu or, Jesus, Commandos, you know? Mm. Uh, that, that's not to say there aren't some quirks to it, uh, some of which we'll talk about in a moment. 
But for now, I did want to chat more about the radar and how you can spend a bit of time looking at it. But I know the the both of you also wanted to talk about it. Like Adam, going off what you've written here in the doc, you you enjoyed the radar. Loved it. I actually consider it the most iconic when it comes to like whoever's going to have a conversation about like mini maps or radars, whatever you want to call it. To me, it's it's Metal Gear. It's it, whatever it is about its style and it, its simplicity with the green line and the the little dots going around. It almost kind of looks like um. A game, if you blew it up, it'd look like a game that was on the Atari. I absolutely adore it. I think it's always, it's it's just embedded into my mind, the whole style of it. We'll get onto it in a second with the camera angles and stuff, but I do think that um, if if you didn't have the radar, I think we'd see this game in a different way. Well, look, let's talk about its camera, because we're talking about the Soliton radar and how it is good, but, and I know you've written it here as well, Josh, the radar needs to be good because they've made a choice with the camera. The camera is set to fixed angles in this game. Basically, you don't have free movement of the camera. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, it's like the Soliton radar is really good because it really has to be. Because so much of Metal Gear is Metal Gear Solid is just is is about sort of tactically denying you sight a bit like Kojima sort of said about how the visuals are important. And a little bit, I think, about, you know, that's that comparison to Resident Evil. So much of when you're just playing Milk Gear Solid minute to minute is about what you can't see. So I think why the radar is so good is that instantly, and uh, I 100% agree with Adam, like just the the visual, just the instant readability of it is pretty amazing. Even now, just effortless. You can in game mechanical terms, figure out what's a threat, what's not a threat. Am I going to be seen? Am I not going to be seen? And once you've read that information, you can then respond in the environment. And then it's got those lovely uh, swooping camera angles when you press up against a wall. So it's almost like, it's kind of like a game of two halves, really. You've got the nuts and bolts game that is actually being played, the sort of code running underneath. And that's basically the Soliton radar. That's what's really happening. And then the actual game itself is a sort of cinematic flourish on top of that. And if you can kind of pop the radar to one side in your head, you can then just sort of enjoy the nutty camera in the game. You can go into your first person. I I always love leaning up against a corner in Metal Gear, even though I don't have to, because I've already looked at the radar and I already know that the guard is going to turn around in a second. But I love walking to the edge of the wall just so that the camera will do the swoop-de-swoop and it'll just go down the corridor and I can just see it. It's just like still glorious to this day. (laughs) But yeah, Soliton Radar, just so good because of because it needs to be, because there's a sort of deliberate limitation. And I do think like it is worth talking about how it, it does need to be. And it's why, I suppose, why, why so many people compared it to Resident Evil before it came out. I'll explain what I mean by fixed camera, because in fairness, in most third person games, you know, that's not what you're getting these days. So there might be some people who are going, what exactly do you mean? When you walk into a new area or sometimes a room within a new area, the angle of the camera will change. Maybe it'll go from a top-down perspective to a sort of angled upwards thing from behind, or it might shoot Snake from face on when he's running down the stairs. And the idea behind this is twofold, I have to imagine. One, if you restrict the amount of game you're showing, your video game will run more fluidly. 
But the artistic reason is that it makes the events of the game play out in a more cinematic fashion like a film. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and like, we, we know that's the reason because Hideo Kojima, he loves films. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's an awful idea, the fixed camera. It can, it can work for certain games. I don't remember it being, I could be misremembering, but I don't remember it being as egregious in some future games in the series. But I guess we'll see in future episodes. <laughs> but regardless, in Metal Gear Solid, like in a stealth game, you bloody well need to be able to see what's around you, whether that's items, hiding places, enemies. If you're not able to see the obstacles in front of you, then what are, what are we doing? Like, what, what are we doing here? And I know there's a first person mode and I know you want to go into that, Josh, so I won't step in your toes. But like the first person mode is a bit flawed as well. But as far as during general play, there are countless moments where enemies off screen are able to see you before you can see them. Like, there's the hangar where the nuclear warheads are being stored. There's the caves that are full of wolves that can see you before you see them. Mm, mm. This game isn't chock full of enemies, because I looked it up afterwards, and I think there are like 26 enemies, like grunt enemies in the game. <laughs> so like, you know, you, you cannot be overwhelmed. Huh. But I, I do think it's, it's still worth mentioning. Yeah, and yeah. and the, reason I, I, the reason I'm saying all this is because the radar is how you're meant to get around the camera issues. It, its clarity is top-notch. It, it, it allows you to place enemies, what enemies are looking at, the layouts of the levels you're in. And like, the, I don't know, the problem is that you can find yourself spending a little bit too much time looking at the top right of your screen. Yeah. I'm not saying, minimaps aren't bad, not saying that. Detective vision, mm. not saying that's bad. Yeah. Joel's magic hearing in The Last of Us, <laughs> also not saying that's bad. All fine and dandy. The only thing is that rather than be something that you can glance at from time to time in order to survey your surroundings, the Soliton radar, I think, can be relied upon a bit too much because the camera placement is often obscuring what's happening in the area you are in. I would also just say as well, though, like that I think it's... I completely agree, but then I think the design choice of heavy, as you just said, there are only 26 enemies in the entire game makes that kind of it, it passes for me on that on that thing because if this game was overrun with enemies in every area and you had to constantly look and you were watching those dots all around the place back and forth that would get frustrating i think there's there's a nice balance of quick look all right i'm grand drive on and like they have that 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 cone and stuff the vision cone of each enemy and stuff which direction they're facing there's enough in it to make you move fast and I don't think you get really bogged down a whole pile staring at that little mini-map. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do think it's fair. And I, I do just want to say it's not a black and white issue for me. I, I, do, I do like it. And, I, you know, for the reasons you said, Adam, and for the reasons you said, Josh, you know, there are things like your chaff grenades. This is one risk-reward part of the radar that I, I, I do like. So your chaff grenades are grenades that if you use them, it'll jam the... Uh, electronics in an area and in Metal Gear Solid you're mostly using these grenades on cameras that will shoot you on site once they've spotted you and because your radar is electronic well when you throw that chaff grenade your radar gets jammed so you lose you lose sight of the layout of the area or the enemies 
uh, in the area until the effects of the grenade wear off. And I think that's a cool risk-reward thing. Mm. You use the chaff grenade on the camera here, but then you're not too sure what's lying in wait around the corner. There's a great tension in that, yeah. And more often than not, as, as I said, not that many enemies, da-da-da-da-da. Like, in truth, it's, uh, you're probably fine, but the tension is still there. Mm. When you're spotted by an enemy, your radar will also get sort of blocked. The minimap layout will be replaced by a red box and it'll just say the word alert. And then the f- it, it'll count down to zero and then it'll be replaced by evasion, which means the guards are just in their suspicious phase. Now, it doesn't quite make sense that being spotted by a guard would mean that you would lose access to your radar. Like, say, the chaff grenades <laughs> does actually make sense. But I'm okay with it. Like, if I'm seen... I'm alright with being punished. It's up to me to try and regain my hidden status. I think Mei Ling says some bollocks about, oh, it's because the enemies are using their radios loads when they spot you. So when they all use their radios, ah. it, yeah, there's like some, you're right, it doesn't but, really work. But you know, but. <laughs> do you know what? But I, I, I appreciate, they've given it some explanation. Like I actually missed that. I, I, but it, it gives it some explanation. But the radar, it's it's pivotal to the game. It's pivotal to the stealth, of course. But as I mentioned a moment ago, and as, as I know the, the both of you mentioned, you even mentioned it a while ago, Adam, it's not a t- actually that challenging of a video game. Like the stealth is very simplistic, isn't it, Josh Wise? It is. Yeah, it is. And it's jazzed up by a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I don't know. It's like one of those things lots of people talk about. There's the, there's the snow and you leave footprints in the snow and... Um, you know, this sort of and water as well. You could you run through puddles. There are things that you can run through that that kind of um, a lo- lovely little graphical flourishes and stuff that sort of roots you in the world with its detail. But um, mechanically, the stealth is pretty simple. It's it's your line of sight, and actually the the, the sight lines aren't very long at all. It's laughable, really. You know, mm-hmm. you're just outside that vision cone. They ain't gonna see you. Um, and it's and it's noise really, and the noise often will boil. To, I mean, it's quite sometimes it can it can be quite clever. Now and then, you know, you sort of step in a puddle. The guy's like, "What's that?" Um, but really, often it's just very very clean. Uh, oh, I'm watching the fella, and he goes that way, and then in like two seconds, he goes the other way, and I'll just wait till he goes the other way, and then I'll full on run past because the because the sound isn't. You know, if there if there are no puddles or nothing that like makes a noise underfoot, there's no uh, sneak function in Metal Gear Solid because I'd forgotten that there's. It's just you're either crawling on your belly or you're full on running, and if you're full on running, you'll you'll be fine, sort of thing. So it really is just sort of line of sight, and then if you fancy, give a little knock on the wall and sort of lure them round. But, you know, you, you can get by with a few really bare, like, core ingredients. Um, and I and I like it. I might say with the first Metal Gear Solid, just maybe a little simple. Um, but there's nothing wrong with simplicity if it's cleanly executed and you always understand the rules and the rules are always consistent. I would always rather that than some sort of merry chaos uh, that some developers sort of chuck in there and it'd be a bit frustrating. So, yeah, simple. Maybe a little bit to a fault, but ultimately on the right side of it for me. It, it really shows, like, from that point on, like, what Kojima was all about. And in my mind, I think, like, playing Metal Gear again and kind of going, yeah, it is very straightforward. It is very, it is very simple. I think 
he wants that. He never wants his games to be overly challenging because he wants you to see his film. He wants you to see the movie that he's creating and the characters and the madness. Unlike, say, I don't know, something like like when we played Splinter Cell, like the, the challenge that's in that. Mm. The simplicity isn't an issue. But let's be honest, it's not crazy simple either like you know oh, it's not yeah, like yeah. just Jesus there's no challenge there is a bit of a challenge one thing you have down here in our doc Josh I actually spoke about it uh, a minute ago that you wanted to talk about the first person view in Metal Gear Solid because it's it's not like the kids would know going into a first person view in 2023 basically uh, you press triangle that's a weird button for it to be as well it's triangle yeah. but anyway you press triangle whenever you fancy um and you can look through solid snake's eyes which um kind of mind blowing uh back in the day that i don't know if that's sort of lost a little bit now just how fully fucking bonkers that was but you know because it's like well a game's third person or it's first person but to have a game that was just fully third person but whenever you want you can look at its world in a completely different way that's kind of amazing um the reason i love it is it does give you lots of advantages like if you want to look down a long corridor which the regular camera does not allow you to do a lot of the time you can do that, but you can't move at the same time. You have to root. It's a bit like Resident Evil 4. You have to kind of plant yourself still in order to look at what you want to look at. And that is also a big risk. And you also lose a bunch of your periphery when you do that. So there's this lovely tension between, oh, that thing down there, even my solitons not picking that up. I'm just going to fully just good old fashioned have a look down that hallway <laughs> And kind of see where I need to go. And sometimes you can see things like you can see um, breath, like your enemy's breath, like steams on the air because it's really cold in Shadow. And there was a couple of times when I saw breath like billowing around from a corner and just thought, oh, that's uh, that's so, so cool. Like I know an enemy's there because it and it reminds me, it sounds really, really, <laughs> really bonkers. It always reminds me of Kojima, but uh, Yu Suzuki, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who made Shenmue. He had this stupid thing, which is one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. But he described uh, Shenmue as a uh, free, which was an acronym for full reactive eyes entertainment, which is amazing. And it actually sounds like something Hideo Kojima would say, like a social strand game or something. But what he wanted in Shenmue was for your eyes to be like, a really big way that you engage with that world mechanically. So like just the act of looking would give you other bits of information. You can look down at his watch, you can look through drawers and all that sort of stuff. And there's a little bit of that there in Metal Gear. Really simple, really like scaled back. I'm not saying it's like absolutely revolutionary or whatever, but there's just that lovely little tension to it. And if you want, I think it just kind of roots you in the world a bit more. One thing I wanted to talk about was, I mean, I've written in our doc here that I appreciate how enemies aren't totally mindless fodder. I get that the word totally is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this because, (laughs) well, I, I suppose, firstly, I want to point out some positives. In the early going, before your health is upgraded and your packing tons of rations like these guards do pose a real threat so you do want to avoid them because if they see you you'll be down in i don't know 
three or four hits, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Now, that's definitely not what it feels like for most of the game, <laughs> but at least for part of the opening, the, the threat of them seeing you is, is really felt because you feel really weak. And another thing, these guards do have their patrols and they'll certainly stick to those until, importantly, they'll notice something that's out of place. So it's not that they'll just go berserk when they see you, they'll investigate uh, things that seem wrong to them. And uh, it's, it's like what you mentioned, Josh. And I, I, I guess um, these things are only used once, but you have that initial first area at the dock where there are puddles and a snake runs into these, a guard will hear it. Mm. But, you know, it, it's only used once. And then you have the footsteps in the snow where if snake is running there, he'll leave footprints. Banagard will investigate it, they'll follow the footprints. But it's just for this specific area, like commandos behind enemy lines, snow. This this is most certainly not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the things that will take guards off their path and how you can manipulate them are like things like knocking on a wall as well. And I still love that all mm. these years later. Mm. Just like, you know, putting snake flush against the wall giving a rap of it with your knuckles and then a guard within earshot investigates and, you know, it, tar- it turns into like Benny Hill or Scooby-Doo type of thing. Even stuff like um, like the cardboard box and stuff like that. The cardboard box, like I was just, like the cardboard box is, like even people who've never played a Metal Gear Solid, you know the cardboard box thing. Like as Solid Snake, you can drop to the floor, stick a car- cardboard box over you and a guard will see the box, walk over, be puzzled for a bit and they'll either pick it off your head if they're in like innovation status. But if they're not, I think they'll just generally go, huh, just a box and then walk on. (laughs) These little wrinkles are just lovely, you know, and they they result in guards that aren't completely stupid. And I get it. Like there are aspects that to, to the guards that feel very dated given where the series went. Like, even taking Metal Gear Solid 2 where when you kill a guard, their bodies won't disappear. Whereas in Metal Gear Solid, they will. Mm. They'll just, bodies will disappear and in their place will be an item, a ration, some ammo, whatever it is. Whereas in MGS2, you have to take that body to a hiding place, like a locker. That's one aspect that definitely stands out. Like I think I even mentioned it during our Deus Ex The Fall episode where you're guaranteed that bodies will just disappear when you kill them. And that does kill the tension somewhat. Mm. And, you know, there's so much ammo in the game as well. (laughs) So it's not like you're never conserving bullets, but we'll talk more about guns when we get to the boom boom section, I suppose. In fact, as I look at our doc here, I think that's a wrap on stealth. So yes, that is what we thought of the stealth of Metal Gear Solid. So... Let's take a quick little break and then we will be back to talk about those aforementioned guns in our Boom Boom section. And we will also tell you about our favourite areas of Metal Gear Solid as well. So we'll be back right after this. All right, then let us chat about the Boom Boom of Metal Gear Solid, which is generally where we talk about the more explosive elements of a game as well as just the other gameplay bits as well um so let's first talk about the explosiveness i suppose and the shooting the gunplay of metal gear solid 
Josh Wise, why don't you start us off? Because the shooting of Metal Gear Solid is, it's, it's odd. Like it's, you know, it's very, it's very Metal Gear Solid-y and kind of not, it doesn't feel like most other things. Definitely not in modern terms. I think it's a bit rubbish. It's a little bit floopy doop. And the controls are, uh, (laughs) I think the series kind of becomes viable with Metal Gear Solid 2 when they add that first person view. Because I always forget it's not there in Metal Gear Solid. Well, the ability to shoot one in first person. Because when you just shoot it, it's like, there's always that weird uh, spaciness where you press and hold square to aim at a person and there's a sort of auto aim but then also you can move snake around when in that view but it's awful and you'd never want to like if you you push the button and he swivels like 10 feet left and right it's not very good um and then it's like if you've got the pistol which is not automatic it's like yeah you 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 hold square to aim and then once he's aimed, you release and he fires, but then keep tapping it and he'll fire more and more. And it's just always, it's a little bit, uh, it doesn't feel great in terms of you being like fully and precisely a very a person who is very good at gunny. You know, it's kind of, it feels a little bit more to me like just mash the button and you'll probably be all right. And if you've got a machine gun, just just hold the button and and that's fine and it kind of just drives home the fact that it's kind of for me anyway the shooting's not really where it's at with this game although the there's a couple of boss fights that are the exception to that and i would say that the shooting does come into its own uh during them one of the places that it's good is the the fight with revolver ocelot i think because there's a real tension in that fight because the shooting i feel is a little bit rubbish and it's for people who don't know it's just you and revolver ocelot are stood in a square room with a square in the middle of it and you have to run around the square chasing each other like the Benny Hill thing that Cullen was saying earlier <laughs> and you're chasing him and then he's chasing you and you just have to sort of pop out and take pot shots at each other and there's a nice tension there and I guess you wouldn't have that tension if the shooting wasn't as floopy but yeah well how, how did you how did you guys feel <laughs> so like I actually want to touch upon like that Ocelot thing because that fight for me with the action and then, for some reason, your radar is taken away. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, the the combat isn't it isn't incredible by any means. Mm. But I think in something like this Ocelot fight, I realized this time round that that fight was not great at all. <laughs> I was in my head, kind of going, yeah, yeah. "This could have been made so much better because there's a lot letting it down." Like because even though the combat is not the 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 shooting isn't great. It's kind of the primary focus right here in this fight. And I know it's obvious because like, you're fighting an enemy, whatever. But like, I can't, when you can't see him and he's, it, the camera's so zoomed down on top of you, it kind of just like, I don't know really what it, it's trying to be or what it's trying to go for. And I, I think when the shooting isn't incredible mm. and then you're thrown into a boss fight that is like shooting yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 not it's not great. It, it, when you take into comparison like the uh the the sniping 
boss oh, fight. Yeah. Like that's way yeah. better. That's handled handles far, far yeah. better. But for me, the I, I do agree, like the way you the way you hold down square to shoot and stuff like that. I wouldn't necessarily think it's atrocious. I think it's odd. It feels a bit odd, but like there's not a whole pile of shooting you really have to do, except for moments like the elevator section where you're just in the smallest elevator ever and you're running around shooting three lads uh, who disappear <laughs> with you. And it, once again, it becomes incredibly Benny Hill. Yeah. And you're like, this is just hilarious because all you do is just run around and just go mental. A similar s- scene happens with, um, I think it's with Merrill when you're just escaping, the door opens, the alarm goes off and there's just oceans like <laughs> chew up the car with the clones coming out of it. You know what I mean? This is, but overall, the shooting as a whole is, I think it's fine. I, I'm more with Josh in that, like, I think the shooting is poor. Mm. It's just, oh, it's just awkward and not terribly fun. <laughs> and I, I do, I do think that a l- there are portions of the second half of the game where it does become a bit more action heavy. Uh, again, like you're, you're never, it never becomes an outright third person shooter or anything like that. But it just feels fiddly mm. in comparison to when you're messing about with throwables like your grenades or projectiles like the Nikita missile. Or even the sniper rifle is grand because you can aim with that. The problem weapons are the ones that you're shooting from the hip. So the SOCOM, which is your handgun, or the FAMAS, which is your machine gun. They're just way too... Well, uh, do you know what, Josh? You actually put it perfect. They're way too floopy dupe. <laughs> I did want to very quickly say that I'm so happy that this game... That came out in 1998 and, you know, has been compared to Resident Evil in the, the pre-launch stuff and looks like Resident Evil with its um, fixed camera and all that. I'm so happy it doesn't have tank controls. That's all. Yeah. Just wanted to say that. It's not, it's not like the controls are blinding, like Snake can't do his dive roll or he can't hang from railings or ledges or whatever. But I'm just so happy that it doesn't have tank controls. Leave tank controls alone. They're, fu- they're oh, all right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Do you know what isn't rubbish, though? We've mentioned it a few times. Well, I suppose some bosses are rubbish. But on the whole, Metal Gear Solid's bosses, not rubbish. Yeah. I am going to say. Yes, the, the two of you have, have already spoken about that initial Ocelot boss. Mm. Probably the simplest boss in the game. In terms of setup, yeah, I don't, I, and I, I don't think all the boss fights are winners. There's that. There's the tank boss battle, yeah, that Gray Fox warns you about, which is the second boss, I think, after Ocelot. It's it's just a bit lifeless in comparison to other bosses because it's a big tank and not a big weirdo that can move picture frames around <laughs> with his mind, you know. Um, so it it's the unique puzzles. That are those boss battles. Uh, th- those are the the notable boss battles. That's what makes them stand out. And even though I have played this game countless times, I can't help but smile at how defeating those bosses. Like it doesn't just come down to who has more ammo and who has more health. Yeah. Like firstly, Gray Fox. Right. You take on Gray Fox, the cyborg ninja, after your first in-person chat with Otacon. And it isn't clear at first how to defeat him. He'll block every bullet from your weapons. So it's fairly easy to become frustrated. But if you listen to what he's saying, 
he's saying things like your weapons are no good here. Now, in most games, you'll hear that and you'll just think that's bravado mm. from the, the boss. Be like, oh, your weapons are no good here because you're shit. Mm. But in fact, here, like this is the game telling you, oh, no, 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 your weapons are no good here. You need to take Grey Fox on in hand to hand combat. And that's after you chuck a chaff grenade at him. Because as I explained earlier, obviously, chaff grenades are used to mess with electronics. And this guy is a cyborg ninja. It's great stuff. Mm. It really is. And you you add in that the ninja will use a stealth camo to try and get the jump in you at points. And it just, it all results in a, a really, really fun time. And I think it actually works better than the next boss I'm going to talk about. But the next boss is obviously... Just the coolest, and that is Psychomantis. He is, was, and forever will be mm-hmm. just one of the coolest boss battles in video game history. Just this gas mask wearing, SM enjoying looking <laughs> lad. Oh, it's magnificent. But I, I shan't step on Adam's toes because you're going to talk about that in a minute. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. I, I did want to talk about what leads into the first Sniper Wolf boss battle uh, later but both encounters with her like they're good fun too mm. like the, the, the first one you're sniping her from afar down this big long corridor um, you're, you're, you're taking these pills called diazepam which in 1998 I was like what's that mm. cool it steadies my hands brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and then the second fight with her is is you know more of the same but in a larger area so she has more places to hide but the way the area is set up means you can employ other tactics like using your Nikita missiles, which I think I mentioned a minute ago. But the Nikita missiles are these little rockets that you shoot from this rocket launcher and then you can direct it via the analog sticks. Then you have the Vulcan Raven boss fight, which I think often gets overlooked. Actually. Yeah, it definitely does. It's yeah. one of the best in the game. Like you're, you're in a big room with these large shipping containers dotted about and these, the way they're placed, it creates like three or four different horizontal paths and three or four different vertical paths um, in this room. You then use these massive containers to like get out of Vulcan Raven's line of sight. He has a gigantic vision cone, best eyesight uh, of anyone in the game. <laughs> and basically he's just stomping about the place with this huge minigun and he'll fire if he sees you. And I, I love how this battle hinges on a sort of real-time stealth, like a regular level in the game, you know? As well as how you can attack Raven in loads of different ways. You can lay down Claymore mines for him to walk on. You can set up C4 traps. You can use the Nikita missiles I mentioned, or you can use your Stinger, which is a weapon that fires these homing missiles at an enemy after you lock on. And I suppose talking about the Stinger, like the Hind D and the Metal Gear boss fights, they hinge on the stinger and they, they are more traditional boss fights, but they're still enjoyable in their own right. Like, you know, and the, the fist fight with Liquid is, you know, fairly straightforward, but it's a nice, very 90s, 80s maybe, kind of action movie fight. And like that final chase scene with Liquid is just pure bombast of action films. So like I just, a few hiccups, but... On the whole, the boss fights are just great. I know Psychomantis is like the, you know, the one that gets the headlines and, you know, rightfully so. But 
I don't actually think that's the, that's like the best fight at all. Like once you've done the trick, it's actually quite a dull fight for me. The, the really cool ones would be, I totally agree. I think Vulcan Raven's fucking awesome. Also, Sniper Wolf is that thing where you're chugging the diazepam and you're aiming at her while she's aiming at you. It's kind of cool how I think like these guys have always been amazing at boss fights just in all their games. But you can see all the all the little seeds from what would like Vulcan Raven would go on to become the Fury in Metal Gear Solid Three, uh, sort of like developed and but sort of quite similar in its layout and in the same way like Sniper Wolf here is sort of prefigures what I think would possibly be like the best boss fight Kojima's ever done with the end in Metal Gear Solid Three. Not jumping ahead a little bit, but it's just cool when you play this game. You can see the the little kernels which would go on to sort of you know develop and pop i know you wanted to shine a bit of a spotlight on the nikita missiles a bit more josh so take it away still so good and like being able to switch into first person as well for the nikita so 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 good the strategy that it gives you in 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 the boss fights as you've kind of already mentioned like you can do it for vulcan and you can do it for sniper wolf as well also, that bit where you've got to use the Nikita to take out the generator, still one of the most frustrating things in a game <laughs> ever. Um, I remember being terrified of that when I was a kid. Uh, that's the kind of, not not the terror that uh, Kojima wanted me to feel, I think. <laughs> just, I knew that I'd just waste like 20 rockets. I still find it really fiddly and bitchy with the cameras and they shoot you and, oh nightmare fuel i hate it but the nikita as a whole is brilliant also natasha romanenko talking about all the gear is brilliant but i'll talk about her when we talk about the story yeah there'll be loads of time to talk about her codec conversations about guns and all that when we we get on to the story but right now i think that is all of our opinions on the boom boom so let's move on to the most noteworthy level mission or area of Metal Gear Solid that stood out to each of us. And I guess that there are no levels. It's one big area. We've just spoken about bosses. So let's talk more about bosses and the one that I skipped over a moment ago. Adam Carroll, why don't you tell the people at home about Psychomantis? And again, because it's 25 years old, like paint a picture of the Psychomantis boss fight. So first off, you you walk into a room and you have yourself and Meryl and there is ludicrous dialogue happening. Like this, I think at this point of the game, I, I started going, Jesus, I this 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 dialogue went so over my head. Like Snake, <laughs> I think, is one creepy bastard sometimes. And he says very inappropriate things. But Psychomantis appears and takes over Meryl. Like, it's almost like a possession mm. moment. And I actually genuinely find it quite, quite scary. <laughs> it's creepy. And Psychomantis is doing his usual floating around, taking over her mind and whatever. And it's all a bit frantic. And as you said, Josh, like, when you get to the point of figuring out what you have to do. But let's tell the people at home who maybe haven't played Metal Gear Solid or aren't as, you know, familiar with Psychomantis as, as we are, what you have to do. Or why you have to do something other than, you know, just take down the boss normally. So as the name suggests, Psychomantis, and as Adam has said, you know, they're a psychic. They can, they've taken over Meryl's mind. But importantly for this boss fight, 
Psychomantis can read your mind, or that's the, the hook, that's the, the, the gimmick. So Psychomantis is able to block all of your attacks. Anytime you shoot at them, they're just able to block it, so you can't hurt them whatsoever. So Adam, take it away. When you find out that you have to swap over your control pad. Now, I was playing on the PS2, so when you have it that way, you have to take out your controller lead and plug it into the second port. (laughs) And personally, that kind of thing, back in the day when I first played it, blew my mind. Because if you don't do it, Psychomantis is taking control of you basically and you cannot move you're just you're there so you have to take it over and go to uh, number two and it's kind of this back and forth thing I think still to this day it's it's so genius it was it was mind blowing back at the time I actually remember it so well when I first played it because I was just like what like I think it's quite similar to like um, the time when I first played like that game Eternal Darkness on the GameCube there was a lot of this kind of like (laughs) yeah playing with your mind kind of thing going on with the screen and stuff and I remember in that game it would turn down the volume and stuff like that and you'd be kind of what the hell is going on um, to me there's not a whole pile of games that can achieve that it's incredibly hard obviously but this was one of two moments that happen in Metal Gear where you really it plays with you in, 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 in a crazy mm. way and I think the, the, the look of Psychomantis the, the 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 voice, everything, the music. Oh, the music before it is unreal. Not necessarily during the actual fight itself, but before it is so mm. good. Um, this it, it forever stands out as like top three moments for me in Metal Gear Solid mm. because I just think that that swapping over is is crazy. I actually, how do you do it if you're going to play it like say on PC or something? If you're playing on controller, you just switch to mouse and keyboard. Okay, okay. and like. Roy Campbell, Colonel Roy Campbell does in the PlayStation game, he will call you up in the code deck and he will just tell you. He will just say to switch to mouse and keyboard and in the same way that in the on the PlayStation he would say, Snake, you need to plug the controller into port two. <laughs> and, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about how it gets meta and all that yeah, yeah. La- later on. But it's so cool and even now it still holds up as Oh, just a wonderful moment. Mm. The only thing about the Psychomantis fight is that there's no way to know that's what you're meant to do until you know it. Yeah. The game doesn't teach you in comparison to say the Grey Fox fight where like, ah, you've learned previously that if I use chat, like I use chaff grenades on electronic stuff. The Cyborg Ninja is kind of electronic oh, look, it has an impact Mm. on him. Like, at no Mm. point does the game introduce something earlier that sets up the Psychomantis fight. Not taking away from the coolness. They do sort of, like, hint it a little bit. I mean, they don't... Yeah, you're right. There's no, like, logic process like there is with the chaff grenade, but the wording of, like, what uh, Mantis says... At first, he's like, "Oh, I can, I can predict your every input." Like he uses the word "input," which is kind of weird in that context. And you sort of go, "Oh, okay." And then I think before Roy Campbell, like, actually, it's really funny. I love it when Roy Campbell just gives up and he's like, pl- "Just fucking plug it into port number two. <laughs> like, but the first, like, before he sort of loses his shit, he like 
he will sort of tease you a bit. He'll be like, it's almost as if blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could think along different lines or something like that. It is, he does sort of try, but yeah, you, you're right, Cullen, that there's no logic. One thing we haven't spoken about is, well, we've kind of a little bit, but like, yeah, that pre-fight section is is absolute gold as well. Because like before the boss fight even begins, Psychomantis reads your mind and by mind, I mean, you know, your memory card. Mm. And like back in the day, this is like, how are you doing this? You <laughs> devil creature. Yeah, like, yeah. He, he comments on how you, you not Snake, but you the player have been playing the game so far. And he comments on, uh, you know, whether you've saved a lot, whether you've fell to traps. Mm. Uh, there's a third thing I can't think of off the top of my head. But the big thing that like is really mad is he comments on whether or not you have Konami saves on your memory card. <laughs> yeah. I have a clip here. No, I didn't. This is something I had to search. I wasn't able to get this myself. So this is a clip from a YouTube channel called Karak Miguel. And this is a clip of Psychomantis telling the player that they have they like Konami games basically because that player had Konami saves on their memory card so yeah take a listen to this Ah, I can see into your mind so you like Suikoden so you like Azure Dream you like Castlevania, don't you? You enjoy role-playing games. I see that you enjoy Konami games. I think that's amazing. It's, it's stuff. incredible. Really, really creepy stuff. Josh, why don't you tell us about the part of Metal Gear Solid that you chose? Yes, I chose the dock and the helipad at the beginning of the game because I think that Metal Gear Solid is at its best in the first sort of half an hour to an hour to be honest and it's kind of it's kind of a big thing it's kind of a big thing like it's really like it puts its best stuff forward but you touched on it earlier Cullum it's at its best when your health is really really low when the guards actually present a threat and also just the atmosphere of snake going about his mission and the way that he's inserted into the place is is really really cool so the setup is he is launched uh to shadow moses in uh like a swimmer delivery a little torpedo basically and he has to swim uh up onto a dock and he has to sneak around this dock with enemies patrolling he has to get into a lift And the lift is just like, it just is on a timer. You just have to wait for it. So it forces you to stay in this area. And like the longer you're there, the more tense it gets. Lift comes down. Another fella comes out the lift. Now there's more enemies in the area and they see your footprints because there's loads of puddles. So you've got to be really careful. Um, And you have to get into the lift, takes off all his scuba gear, goes up onto a helipad. And then immediately... There's just the coolest shit that's in the game right there. You've got the snow, 
There's your footprints in the snow. There's like five different things that are going to fucking blow you away. The snow's nuts. The searchlights are nuts. The searchlight is another thing that only happens once. Never used again. Never really used again. Yeah, uh, never really used again. And it's absolutely awesome. And you can get a bit chancy with it and try to get the item in between the two beams, which is classic shit. CCTV camera off to the left. Um, they that you do get them again, but this is like it's just vertical slice madness. But the reason the helipad is so good is good, especially coming just after the dock. It's like this nutty one-two punch. It's like basically the only environment in the game where you actually kind of have to use everything. You use the binoculars and you use your eyes and you kind of see all these different ways that you can get in. You can you can uh, go through the Um, door you can go up onto the second level and creep that there's like an access on the second level you can crawl through the vent there's also like vent access on the ground floor if you want but there's a soldier stood in front of it and he's asleep so you could kind of try to deal with him if you want to it's just like all these different things to do oh you can there's an early grab a gun i think it's a socom gun is in the back of the jeep so you can go into the back of the jeep it's just it's one of the only areas, looking back on it, that would do that, that would give you this full, not sandboxy area, that's too strong. I'm not saying it's like immersive sim territory, but it's a a big juicy area with loads of stuff. All of the stuff that Metal Gear Solid gets talked about for is in those two beginning areas, and it's in the rest of the game less and less. And I, you know, I... However damning you think it is, sure, you know, the bottom line is it's in the game and it makes the game brilliant, but it's never better for me than that than that first hour. I do think maybe that is a little criticism as well. I do think broadly it is a bit downhill from there. The part of Metal Gear Solid I wanted to, to highlight is the section of the game where you're getting the PSG-1. And that is the the sniper rifle that you need for the first sniper wolf boss fight. And the reason I've chosen that is, I suppose I I wanted to talk about this section and this felt like the best opportunity, to be honest, because otherwise I probably would have picked Psychomantis as well. But I want to say, (laughs) please do not correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say that this is the longest stretch of the game where you're not served any cutscene or story. I think you're simply going to get the gun and then you're heading back for the fight. And I, I, I do want to point out as well that so much of this game is totally in service to the plot. Like almost everything you do is pushing this story along. And I mean, for that reason, I think it's so well paced. We'll talk about the story, but like, I, I think it's really, really well paced. But... I suppose, why then, I suppose, am I picking this part of the game where you're actually asked to go backwards rather than (laughs) go forwards? And it's partly because of what I've already mentioned. Like, it's this weird anomaly that just feels different to anything else in the game. There is a section later on with the key card that is similar. Oh, yeah. But that's a much, 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 much shorter version. It, It also, this area, it gives you an opportunity to take in sections of the game that have altered ever so slightly since you were there. And I, I I do mean, like, you know, ever so slightly, like sections like the armory might have some patrolling guards now. Yeah. Whereas, you know, previously they didn't. But I, I, I just like going back over old ground and 
checking to see if my new key card would allow me to open doors that I previously wasn't able to open. And I do want to stress again, because I even said it earlier, like it's not Metrovania. It really, really isn't. It's a little hint at that, I suppose. Mm. And how you can revisit some areas and pick up certain things. Like, for example, and I only knew this because of prior knowledge, I got to a point, was it the Sniper Wolf section? I think it was. And I went, oh, I, well, I'll just take out my, uh, what are they called? My thermal goggles. And I was like, oh, I don't have thermal goggles. Oh, I never picked up my thermal goggles. <laughs> so then I, when I was going back, I collected them. But yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about it because there's kind of nowhere else to talk about it. And I just think it's, it's this nice, weird little anomaly in the game. So that is what area stood out to each of us and also what we thought of the boom boom. So we are going to take a quick little break and then we will be back to talk to you about the story of Metal Gear Solid and just any other little bits we have to talk about at the end in our little miscellaneous section. So we will be back right after this. All right, then, let us chat about the story of Metal Gear Solid. Some would say saying the story of in that sentence is irrelevant. Yeah. Because it is Metal Gear Solid. And I wanted to talk about one thing, actually, that it makes Metal Gear Solid feel so relevant today, just as it did in 1998. And it's kind of like what I was saying about Splinter Cell and how Splinter Cell, you know, didn't question what was actually happening in the game. I'm kind of talking around it. So like pretty much the lives of everybody in this game are intertwined with war, right? Some like it, some don't, but most just have a complicated relationship with war. And at various points, everyone gets their moment to discuss the impact that war and conflict has had in their lives and Frankly, it's very rare for them to say, God, war is grey crack. <laughs> like, it, it, Metal Gear Solid always yeah. wants to show you the destruction that war causes rather than glorify it. I mean, I could play hours and hours of clips representing this, but I, I, I do have a few to illustrate this point. And I'll say now, rather than repeat myself over and over, a, a, a portion of them have been edited down a little bit because... These conversations can often go on quite a bit. More on that <laughs> later. But anyway, the first time Snake meets Otacon uh, is after the Grey Fox battle. And I even mentioned this earlier. And Otacon learns of what Foxhound are planning to do with Metal Gear. And he speaks about how he believes his family is somehow destined to be connected to nuclear weapons in some point. But ultimately, he wants to change that. So, you know, he's got to work with um, with Solid Snake. So take a listen to this. The truth is, my grandfather was part of the Manhattan Project. He suffered with the guilt for the rest of his life. And my father... He was born on August 6th, 1945. The day of the Hiroshima bomb. Three generations of Emmerich men. We must have the curse of nuclear weapons written into our DNA. Science has always thrived on war. Greatest weapons of mass destruction were created by scientists who wanted to be famous. But that's all over now. I won't take part in murder anymore. 
Whatever. All I want from you is information. <laughs> big, big fan of the for there. But the, then you have when Snake meets Meryl in the bathroom, and it's, this is just before the Psychomantis fight, and Snake, he's trying to get Meryl to stop heaping praise on him like he's this war hero. And she then goes on to speak about how her dream as a little girl was to be a soldier. But it was just so she could understand her father a little bit better. And in this clip, you will also hear Snake's complicated relationship with war. He says, like, it's not a heroic pursuit, but also he's quite good at it. So he also sort of enjoys it. It's just, yeah, like his relationship with it is obviously maybe more complex than anyone else's. But yeah, take a listen to this. This is Snake and Meryl in the bathroom before... Psychomantis Feist. I was a fan of Foxhound way back, and guys like you and my uncle were in it. None of that gene therapy like there is today. You guys were real heroes. There are no heroes in war. All the heroes I know are either dead or in prison, one or the other. But Snake, you're a hero, aren't you? I'm just a man who's good at what he does, killing. There's no winning or losing for a mercenary. The only winners in war are the people. That's right, and you fight for the people. I've never fought for anyone but myself. I've got no purpose in life, no ultimate goal. Come on. It's only when I'm cheating death on the battlefield. The only time I feel truly alive. Seeing other people die makes you feel alive, huh? You love war and don't want it to stop? Is it the same with all great soldiers throughout history? You know, I don't use makeup the way other women do. I hardly ever look at myself in the mirror. I've always despised that kind of woman. I always dreamed of becoming a soldier, but I was wrong. It wasn't really my dream. My father, he was killed in action when I was younger. You wanted to follow in your father's footsteps? Not really. I thought that if I became a soldier, I could understand him better. So are you a soldier yet? I thought I was until today, but now I understand. The truth is, I was just afraid of looking at myself, afraid of having to make my own decisions in life. But I'm not going to lie to myself anymore. It's time I took a long, hard look at myself. I want to know who I am, what I'm capable of. I want to know why I've lived the way I've lived until now. I want to know. Take a good look. You won't get another chance for a while. You should wash your face, too, while you're at it. Yeah. This isn't a training exercise. Our lives are riding on this. There are no heroes or heroines. If you lose, you're worm food. Yeah. It's just mad for a game in 1998. It's fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, there there are plenty of other examples. Like, uh, during Sniper Wolf's death scene, she reveals she was born during the uh, Iraqi-Kurdish war in the mid-70s. Mm. And she talks about how she'd wake up every day and wonder if her family had been murdered. But also she speaks about how just how brilliant she is at shooting targets from far away with her big gun. Mm. Um, Grey Fo- Fox is the same. He flipping loves the fight, mm. but he killed Dr. Naomi Hunters, who is, I don't think we've mentioned her, who is like Snake's remote doctor but uh, Grey Fox killed Naomi's parents when she was a kid so then he raised her as a little sister mm. like for, for almost everyone war and death and life is all wrapped up together like Solid Snake and Liquid Snake are the most clear example of this they were given life because of war like they're clones of the best soldier ever Big Boss so like without 
Big Boss and his what what he did on the battlefield, the Snake Brothers, they wouldn't exist. And just because Cam Clark is so wonderfully hammy and over the top as Liquid, here is a clip of the game's main antagonist revealing all of this to Snake near the end of the game. And also you'll get to hear him say the words Les Enfants Terribles, which is always a good time. You enjoy all the killing. What? Are you denying it? Haven't you already killed most of my comrades? That was... (laughs) I watched your face when you did it. It was filled with the joy of battle. You're wrong. There's a killer inside you. You don't have to deny it. We were created to be that way. Created? Les Enfants Terribles. The Terrible Children. That's what the project was called. It started in the 1970s. Their plan was to artificially create the most powerful soldier possible. The person that they chose as the model was the man known then as the greatest living soldier in the world. Big Boss. But Father was wounded in combat and already in a coma when they brought him in. So they created us from his cells, with a combination of 20th century analog cloning and the Super Baby Method. Super Baby Method? They fertilized an egg with one of Father's cells, and then let it divide into eight clone babies. Then they transferred the clones to someone's uterus, and later intentionally aborted six of the fetuses to encourage strong fetal growth. You and I were originally octuplets. Octuplets? Yes. The other six of our brothers were sacrificed to make us. We were accomplices in murder before the day we were even born. Ultimately, in the final moments of the game, they do say the quiet part out loud by having Naomi say the words, choose life. And sadly, Iggy Pop doesn't start to play. This would have been good. But, but yeah, like she, she says her piece about like not letting things dictate your destiny. And then Snake puts a full stop on it with uh, this hopeful speech at the end. I said earlier that there are two endings, one with Otacon and one with Meryl. Um, I got the ending with Meryl. It depends on one thing you do in the game that we might talk about in a bit. So you'll hear her voice here with Snake rather than Otacon. It's a bit saccharine and maybe a bit unnecessary, but take a listen to this. Until today, I've lived only for myself. Survival has been the only thing I cared about in my life. That's not just you. That's how everyone is. I only felt truly alive when I was staring death in the face. I don't know. Maybe it's written into my genes. What about now? What do your genes say about your future now? Maybe it's time I live for someone else. Someone else? Yeah. Someone like you. Maybe that's the real way to live. So, where to, Snake? David. My name's David. Okay. So where to, Dave? Hmm. I think it's time we look for a new path in life. A new path? A new purpose. Will we find it? We'll find it. I know we'll find it. God, even just listening back to it, yeah, I don't like that at all. <laughs> it's, it's way too 
sloppy. The ending with Otacon is actually better. I should have probably yeah, grabbed that. Yeah, but it yeah. punctuates that thing. Whereas I say, like everything, war is just intertwined with all of these people. Mm. And that is Solid Snake saying, I'm going to try and not let that dictate my life. Uh, Josh, you wanted to talk about how the game like delivers the story to you. Yeah. Kojima as a as a writer is is sort of all over the shop and also Tomokatsu Fukushima who also you know co-wrote an awful lot of Metal Gear Solid with him they do those things where they they absolutely hit you over the head with something and the funny thing is is that like they will already have demonstrated their point elsewhere in a much like nicer better way one of the things that i really like about metal gear solid is that even though its story is bonkers and there's loads of it and there's like hours and hours and hours of cutscenes it's so much of it is given to you in a really like polite fashion it it sort of takes into account that because kojima isn't or doesn't have the cult of Kojima that he would like then go on to have. It's almost like s- s- some 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 smarter heads prevailed at Konami and sort of thought, okay, you could put this stuff in there, but y- you can't. You got to give the player a way into the fun quicker. So, so much of like the backing behind the mission and why Snake is going where he's going. Um, is actually just, uh, you may well just go past it by accident. It's it's on the main menu, but instead of hitting new game, you scroll down to briefing and it then plays these, you can hear these videotapes being put into the tape player and you see this lovely, uh, they're cutscenes, but it's like static images that sort of change uh, in a really nice way and like some of Shinkawa's artwork and it just gives the whole grounding and basis to the mission, the political grounding, the history of the Fox unit. And if you're really keen, you can watch every single tape because as you watch one, new tapes pop up, you know, and you can learn about, oh, well, here's why, here's who your support staff are and why they want to be involved in the mission. And the volume of writing is just staggering for stuff that, and you just think, you know, he's got, it's like, I've just, you know, imagine being those guys at the end of a working week and saying, oh, I've written 250 pages of the nuttiest bullshit you'll ever hear. And <laughs> But then the pun- the punchline is, although you probably will never hear it. Like, I, d- I do admire that about Metal Gear Solid. Like, if you don't think to dial your codec to uh, Nastasha Romanenko, who, who tells you everything that you need to know, about items and weaponry, then you'll never get her aside. And actually, she's a really interesting character. She's an academic and she's a freelance writer for anti-war journals. She lives in California. This is just fucking stupid backstory there. And yeah, but it's actually quite admirable that they just go, yeah, look, you know, if you want it, it's there. And Christ, it, boy, is it there if you want it. But if you don't want it, just just go in and actually the top notes from the briefing, Roy will just give you that during some of the cutscenes, the absolute top notes. And you only have to look at that stuff if you want to. And I just think that's great. I think that's sort of, I don't know if it's brave or what, but it's bloody smart. Mm. Oh, they are good. Another thing you've mentioned here, Josh, in our doc, 
is that you enjoy the mystery that the game tells, at least in the early going. It is. I do think it is really, it's really cool. You, you genuinely like you're sent to this mission and there's some really clever twists uh, and you really don't know an awful lot about why you're there. You know that it stinks and you know that Campbell knows more than he's letting on. And as bits are sort of drip fed to you, the whole thing with the DARPA chief is classic. You wonder what the hell's going on. People randomly start having heart attacks. You talk to Kenneth Baker, the president of arms tech, and he says, oh, don't be an idiot. Like, and he even says stuff like, oh, your boss, Jim at the Pentagon, you know, he's really like, um, sort of cryptic and stuff. And then he sort of says, I, I, I thought that I, I wouldn't have put it past them, but I didn't realize they were actually going to do it. And you figure out that in actual fact, uh, Naomi Hunter doesn't like you um, as a person and she wants revenge for Frank Yeager, Grey Fox. And she actually, the shot that she gave you at the beginning of the mission, which she told you was anti-freezing peptides, uh, actually contained fox dye. And it's it's that virus, you are killing uh, the DARPA chief and Kenneth Baker just when you get near them. And like... But then, of course, there's the twist about, oh, well, it's actually not Donald Anderson, though. It's 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 Decoy Octopus. It's this other member of Foxhound that you've you've heard about, but you never see them. And again, they'd kind of do that later again with the sorrow in, in, in three. Like it's the secret member of Foxhound. And mm-hmm. it's just such a lovely you, you really are on the back foot for so much of it. And when things get revealed and Snake's as angry as you are and the colonel kind of comes clean about, oh, what are you on about? You're overseeing the mission, but you don't have access to the file. Like, what the hell's going on? And you do want to know. And that, that's what I'll say. These games are bonkers so much of the time with so much bullshit that goes on. But at, like, at the crux of Metal Gear Solid is just a ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom plot and each each of the steps, you just think, I want to know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. And that's so important. It can't all be theoretical bullshit. You know, it's got to have a driving pulse to it. And for me, it did. I mean, so much of it is bullshit. <laughs> You've teed me up there quite well for what I wanted to talk about. And trying to get through it as briefly as possible, because I know we'll never get to talk about Yakuza or the Like a Dragon series, and it hurts my heart. So I might as well mention my love of it now. I'm pretty sure the reason I fell for that series is the same reason why I originally fell for Metal Gear Solid. Mm. Because when I played Yakuza 0, I was drawn in by the interweaving, twisty-turny melodrama (laughs) surrounding Kazuma Kiru and Goro Majima in the main quest line. But the disco dancing, the darts, the outlandish <laughs> characters you encounter in side quests, like that all turned me into a fan as well. And it's, it's those wild tonal shifts that are actually a draw and not a deterrent. Mm-hmm. And, and that's likely because in both avenues, we're talking about extremes. Like the silliness is pushed to the nth degree, as is the drama. And Metal Gear Solid has that exact same spirit. Yes. Like I've spoken about its more grounded themes, such as the look at war and you spoke about it there as well, Josh, but the, the game also attempts to capture just, I don't know, just real human emotions. Like for mm. example, Otacon is in love with Sniper Wolf, but she basically doesn't know he exists. He's mm. this blubbering mess when she dies. But the, the clip I wanted to play here is after the hind D battle, I think. And it's where you meet up with Otacon and he asks you if soldiers can love 
And it's basically what's considered by many to contain one of Otacon's like big memorable lines. So take a listen to this. Snake, there's something I've really got to ask you. Have you ever loved someone? That's what you came to ask? No, I mean, I, I was wondering if even soldiers fall in love. What are you trying to say? I want to ask you. Do you think love can bloom even on a battlefield? Yeah, I do. I think at any time, any place, people can fall in love with each other. But if you love someone, you have to be able to protect them. I think so too. We spoke about Psychomantis, for example, earlier, but we neglected to mention what happens during his death scene. Yeah, fuck. In his final moments... He uses his power to tell Snake how to get to the underground base where Metal Gear Rex is being held. Um, Mantis gives Snake like the exact route, how you get there. And as he says, it's the first time he's using his powers to help another person. He also goes into his relationship with his father and how that molded him into the person he became. Um, I have a clip. It's a bit ed- edited uh, in the interest of brevity, uh, but there's certainly a bit of the same feeling with like Grey Fox and even in the clip I played a moment ago where Meryl talks about her dad as well. But yeah, to hammer home the point of familial relationships and regret, here's a bit of Psychomantis. So take a listen to this. Humans weren't designed to bring each other happiness. From the moment we're thrown into this world... We're fated to bring each other nothing but pain and misery. The first person whose mind I dove into was my father's. I saw nothing but disgust and hatred for me in his heart. My mother died in childbirth. And he despised me for it. I thought my father was going to kill me. My mask... Put it back on. Okay. This is the first time I've ever used my power to help someone. It's strange. It feels... kind of... nice. The game has these scenes of raw human emotion. But you heard me talking about Yakuza. You thought I'd be talking about the melodrama and also the silliness. So to loop back around, there's absolute nonsense Mm. in here. Like, (laughs) I'm going to blow through some absolute gold, right? I've already played you a bit of Psychomantis pre-battle stuff where he talks about the Konami game. So you know about that. I mean, uh, but like, there's so much more. Like, Metal Gear Solid acknowledges you are in a game by speaking to the player. Characters will literally say things like, press the whatever button. Like, for example, before a torture scene where Snake is being electrocuted by Revolver Ocelot, Ocelot explains the rules and not to Solid Snake. He explains the rules to the player. So take a listen to this. Press the circle button repeatedly to regain your strength. When you've had enough, press the select button to submit. When your life reaches zero, the game is over. There are no continues, my friend. Don't even think about using auto fire, or I'll know. 
<laughs> and do you know what? I, I am okay with it because like one of the very first things that Roy Campbell says to you over the codec is like press the select button yeah. to, to yeah, pull up a yeah, codec. Yeah, yeah. It would be different if it was something introduced like late on. Oh yeah, yeah. Very early on. You know, the game is like press the X button to crouch or whatever it is. People have a pop at Kojima for being very, very um, serious and, and, and worthy and all big themes and all that sort of stuff. But I do think not, it's not often, it's not said enough how much he does embrace the silly and the funny as well and like fundamentally never forgets it's a game i mean like talking about never forgetting it's game like there is a character we mentioned it earlier mei ling who says like do you want to save your game snake yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean like the co- the codec is the codec is all her nonsense like I, i'm yeah. reminded a bit of <laughs> yeah. of like we um, when we spoke about assassin's creed and we talked about digital heaven like so if we haven't said yet the codec is your radio i think we've mentioned it but it's, mm. it's how you talk to other friendly characters we have mentioned it of course yeah. but snake is told that enemies won't hear the codec ring because it's somehow tuned to just his ear. Cool, I'll go along with that. But it's never explained if Snake is talking out loud to the people on his radio because if he is, why can't enemies hear him? Mm. And also, Snake acts like he can see other characters. Yeah, there's like there's just it's just so much. Like yeah. I could go on for hour, hours and hours. But there was one clip related to the codec that I did want to play and it's the Master Miller twist because it is just chef's kiss. Like it ties into what I just mentioned about the codec. So I said this earlier, but Miller is an old buddy of snakes and he's one of your codec contacts throughout the game. But before the battle with Metal Gear Rex, Miller reveals that he isn't Miller and he's actually liquid snake in disguise. You're look, you're definitely going to lose something without the visual. But in this clip, you're going to hear Master Miller put on his evil voice like when the baddie is caught in an episode of Poirot. Like then you'll hear a whoosh sound effect and that is Miller taking off the sunglasses he was wearing and also he takes his hair down after he had it tied up in a ponytail. So for some reason Snake sees him do this. I don't know how, because Snake doesn't have a screen for his codec. Like, sometimes he can see people doing things, sometimes he can't. We, the player, can see both faces, but it's never explained the Snake can see the people he's speaking with. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, I wanted to play this because, again, it's Cam Clark gnawing on that scenery like nobody's business. And it's just great that this man, he tricked the brilliant Solid Snake by wearing sunglasses and having his hair in a ponytail. So take a listen to this. Who are you anyway? I'll tell you everything you want to know. If you come where I am, that is. Where are you? Very close by. Snake, that's not Master Miller. Campbell, you're too late. Master Miller's body was just discovered at his home. He's been dead for at least three days. I didn't know because my codec link with Master was cut off. But Mei Ling said his transmission signal was coming from inside the base. So who is it? Snake, you've been talking to me, dear brother. Liquid, how the... 
You've served your purpose. You may die now. Hmm, that's so yeah, that's nice. fantastic. Oh, I, very quickly, I nearly forgot one of the wildest things in the game. And I, I mentioned or I alluded to this earlier. So in order to get in contact with Meryl, you are told you'll find her. I think it's Kenneth Baker, the Armstead president. He tells you that you'll find her codec number on, quote, the back of the CD case. Now, when I was young, I must have tried everything in the game yeah. to figure out what was meant by the back of the CD. Yeah, case. yeah. Because even Kenneth Baker, I think he gives you an optical disc. And I was like, is it a disc? It's, is there something in this? Do I need to equip this item? But he actually means the back of the game case, as in in real life. So you have to look at the back of the Metal Gear Solid box and in there you will find Merrill's codec frequency. Absolutely nutty. It's so good. I remember having yeah, my, phenomenal. when I was a kid, it wasn't the Psycho Man. The Psycho Mantis stuff was amazing, but that one was like really like subtle and downplayed. They wanted the game to just spill over the edges of what it was, of where it was supposed to be contained. And it's just, it is a kind of magic that you don't, even today, maybe you can't get it anymore because Metal Gear already did it. <laughs> it's gone now, maybe. But <laughs> I think like that code in the back of the box and the Psychomantis moment are like, they're the two moments I was talking about when I was speaking about Psychomantis when the code was the other one. That kind of level of thought and surprise mm. and like... They're not gimmicks, like they're just. It's just such a mad, mad idea that I don't know how would would we ever get something like that again. I have never played any game since Metal Gear Solid to do that kind of a thing, you know. So it's mad. I know you wanted to talk about the 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 tone of the game as well, Adam. Like I totally agree with a lot of what you're saying and stuff regarding the story, but like it is it is at times for me that the very serious moments that it goes for, like. The Otacon and Snake talk about love and things like that. I can't really connect to it and there and then because I feel <laughs> the delivery from both voice actors is so silly and so it, it just always feels like it's kind of taking the piss. Am I supposed to really take this seriously? But then that tonal kind of shift in weird ways really works in my opinion. And it, But I think overall it makes it a kind of a B-movie effect. That kind of 80s action a crazy plot and iconic characters is kind of what I really look into the most in Metal Gear Solid the the, the war story and stuff pff, whatever just it never ever it was something I gave a shit about I was just more taken back by the wildness of everything because when it does get serious I'm just like okay but then it could go from talking about something so extreme to then having Snake commenting on how cute Mei Ling is or how nice of a, a butt Meryl has and you're just like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I suppose that's why I kind of compare it to Yakuza. Like, it's, it's Metal Gear Solid isn't drama, it's melodrama. Yeah. One, like, very, very quick thing I wanted to mention is like, yeah, I, I get it's Metal Gear Solid, cool, but God, there's a lot of talking, isn't there? <laughs> Like, my God. There is a lot of talking. Jesus, there's there a, lot is a lot of talking. Like, one could argue, one could argue that there doesn't need to be as many codec conversations as there are in this game. <laughs> one could also argue mm. that there doesn't need to be as many deep conversations or character reveals or as many delving into the history and emotions of these characters. And, like, I, I spoke about, you know, the kind of the positives of these things, but, like, 
so many of these bad guys have moments with a capital M before they die. And obviously Liquid is a chatty Cathy. Like, <laughs> character depth, good. Not, not you know, many games don't even have a sniff of Metal Gear Solid's depth. But going back and playing it, and obviously I know that, like, it's it's very story heavy, going to be a lot of cutscenes, a lot of coded coda conversations. But even now it was like, whew, who does a lot? <laughs> but talking about coded conversations, talking about the cutscenes, the cinematics, uh, Josh, you you wanted to to mention about just like how mad they are. Yeah, like just I remember at the time just how many cutscenes there were was in itself uh, like an amazing thing. Just just sheer like quantity, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But also just like they are re- like really nicely directed and sort of shot and cut, and the camera angles that are used in them are really impressively cinematic i still think like the the opening if you if you sort of suppose that the player hasn't watched the briefing and has only got um what you get when you start the game with like you know no save file so you you just you see the submarine in the in the sea and then you uh cut to uh snake you know washing up on the little dock thing just that opening like first five minutes it's just it's just kind of a bit mind blowing like it's it's just sort of like so atmospheric the use of that choir to open the game it kind of clues you into the fact that like oh yeah you yeah, know it's a big action game with a load of tough guys and it's all about war and soldiers and that but then you listen to that song and it's, it's so sad and sort of like lovely and you just sort of immediately understand the irony of it. And you kind of quite quickly just sort of think, oh, okay, this is going to be sort of about the somberness underneath it all. Like even from that, like it's the way that it uses music and, and camera, it just, it's, it's ironic, really. It, it communicates so much without all of the words that it's so funny how how many words there then are in the <laughs> game. Um, but they really should be commented upon for 1998 it was fucking it's stupid how like good it was i mean you're talking like in the same way that the last of us was praised for doing certain script things and certain hollywood cinematic things like that was metal gear solid 20 years ago like it, it was doing all of that stuff as well it really was even the stuff like you're going through the dock and the game's credits are just coming up as you're walking mm-hmm. around the dock and just seeing the names. And then the last one you see is directed by Hidet. Just stuff like that. It's like, they're kind of writing their own legacy a little bit. And it's a little, maybe they're a bit up their own bums a bit, but so effective, I think. So that is what we thought of the story of Metal Gear Solid. So this is generally the part of the podcast where we just hoover up any final bits that don't fit into any of the other categories, a miscellaneous section. And Adam, I know you wanted to start us off kind of similar to what I guess Josh is talking about, how lovely the cutscenes look. I think you want to talk about just how nice the the game looks um, in action. Yeah, I think like, you know, playing this game in 2023 and still being completely blown away visually by the color palettes overall of like the green, the gray, the blues. Uh, like there's a part where I always feel that like every time I replay out of Metal Gear Solid and Silent mm. Hill 2, 
I still think that like they just look so perfect still and even down to like the 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 look of the the characters' faces, even though there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing at all. It's just a, it just it just works. It just it's just such a thing. It's so unbelievably iconic and like there's there's crazy good details still within the game. I I honestly like I can never see I, I don't think I'll ever play the game and just be like, oh that looks fucking dodge now, doesn't it? <laughs> there's a couple of games I would return to now and I would think that, but Metal Gear Solid still remains really great. One thing I wanted to say, and I know it's kind of it's counter to what you have already said, Adam, even though like I do agree with you. Like this is the least creepy Metal Gear Solid game. Even though it is still, it's still, it's, it's still a bit creepy. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It is still a bit creepy. Like, because there's the part where Meryl is in her guards uniform, and you have to try and find out which one Meryl is. You basically have to find like which <laughs> you have to watch all of their arses, find out which one is wiggling their hips, Outrageous. and you go and it, it, Meryl even go. Oh, how did you know who I, which one I was? And Snakes is something like, oh, because you have a cute arse or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> in comparison to some of those scenes with Eva in three, quiet from five, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Adam, you also wanted to talk about uh, changing discs. Ah, oh, look, this, this, is, this is something like, this is not like Metal Gear Solid changing discs, but like the thing was, I was playing it and I haven't played a game where I had to change a disc in a long, long fucking time. I think the only games I ever, ever had to do that for was Metal Gear and probably Final, Final Fantasy. Fantasy. Oh, wow. yeah. And I think after the Sniper Wolf fight, you run out the door and then it just brings up the title screen, Metal Gear Solid, and it goes, <laughs> and then just insert this too. And I was like, Jesus Christ, where's the, where's the box? I was like, this is mental. But I remember... I always felt back then, more so with Final Fantasy, that when you had to change a disc, it felt like you were after like, we're, we're knee deep into this game now. I'm after conquering this disc here now. This is great. There was something rewarding about it and it was just funny to do it in 2023, really. Josh Wise, you wanted to talk about, as I'm sure all of us do in many ways, the music, the soundtrack. Of a Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. And I do, I just think there's none of the games in the series are quite like Metal Gear Solid. Just the first Metal Gear Solid. It's sort of, it, with regard to its its music, the music that plays while you're creeping around, uh, the theme obviously is amazing, but just like the weird, and it almost, it, it ties into how it's kind of muffled because it's like an older game, like the quality of the audio as well. It's just such a rich, like, sonic place to be. Like, the, the noises of all the doors and the footsteps and stuff. It's just, when you're playing Metal Gear Solid, you're really in that game. Like, you, you sort of leave planet Earth behind almost. And it's just, it's, it's just such great, like, ambient, noise and music uh, and I, I like they, they never really they all did their own things with music like metal gear it's kind of amazing like every metal gear solid game is so distinct like in terms of its audio it's ridiculous like, i don't know any of those other series that's like that but this one in particular amazing also uh it's given us one of the best things in video games ever which is the alert noise when you're spotted 
and I just wanted to touch yeah. on how good that is. It's like it, it perfectly instills the emotion of just sheer panic and like shame. <laughs> like it makes you feel guilt almost. Like oh god, like it's all embarrassing. Like fuck, like you've been caught with your pants down. It's just as a noise the person that made that noise it's just like a stroke of genius like they can mm-hmm. they can just retire and they just go i did the noise that when you get spotted and that's all and yeah. then everyone just goes well fair play fair play you can you know that's <laughs> if you only ever did that noise then that you'd be all right would you like to hear some of the music of metal gear solid yes please first track i have is called cavern this plays during that opening section where you're at the dock, which you spoke about earlier, Josh. Yes. Like this very atmospheric, lovely little hi-hats. When I listen to this, I can hear the honk, honk of the lift coming down, <laughs> even though it's not there. Yeah, you can yeah. just hear it. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, take a listen to this. Unreal stuff that mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that's just phenomenal. Can't believe it. Another track here. This one is called Intruder One. Uh, this plays before you meet the DARPA chief, who obviously turns out to be Decoy Octopus. And this is like kind of sharp strings and drippy sounds like water coming from a tap. This is great as well. Take a listen to this. So good. And you know what? I know that Harry Gregson Williams, he is a hero and he, he'd come into this series and earn his stripes. I mean, he is phenomenal. I don't want to diss on Harry Gregson Williams, but just credit to the original Konami soundtrack team, though, because this stands up there for me with like the absolute peak of Metal Gear sound. No, the track, this is called Rex's Lair. Obviously enough, it's what you hear the first time you come to where Metal Gear is being housed. And uh, like this section for me, it, it actually, this is where the fixed camera really works because like it's positioned behind you and it's a bit lower and it like emphasizes the size of the mech. And just this track, I don't know, it, it, it even emphasizes it further because it's like you've like low ominous drones that just fit the whole scene so well. Uh, so yeah, take a listen to this. <laughs> Thank you. 
bad things are about to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it really works. <laughs> but the last track I wanted to play, I mean, I felt like we, we couldn't not. The Best Is Yet To Come by Rika Muranaka. Yeah. Performed by Aoife Niarik. So this plays over the credits and it is just so incredible. Good. I mean... C- compare this to Name of the Game, which closes Splinter. <laughs> it's the name of the game. <laughs> and maybe it's unfair of me, but like, I really don't think it is. Like, uh, ver- very little I can say will match the, the majesty of this thing. Like, it is just outstanding. And I wish I could play all of it. But look, here's a little taster. And I apologize in advance for chopping this down, but I've tried to edit it to give you a bit of the intro and a bit where the song kicks in. Uh, So take a listen to this. And I, I, I was doing a bit of research on this song. Timeextension.com did an article on it in 2022. Uh, it's just called The Story Behind Metal Gear Solid's The Best Is Yet To Come. And it is, it, it's, I mean, I found, no, some of these names, Josh, they might be lost on you because they're Irish. Oh, but they, they stood out to me and I'm sure they will as well, you, Adam. But the composer, Rika Muranaka, first of all, she said, Quote, I guess we were trying something new and different. Hideo didn't want any music that he knows or that he'd heard. So I said, what about Gaelic? And he said, what's Gaelic? And that's how I started doing Gaelic music. (laughs) So the sound engineer that worked on this is a man called Philip Begley, right? Maybe a name that many people mightn't be aware of. Philip Begley has worked with Daniel O'Donnell, Mary Black, Clannad, and Christy Moore. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. No, no th- hold on. Hold on to your hat because I'm about to blow your mind even further, right? So this is from the article itself. Quote, of course, Muranaka didn't know any Gaelic. Uh, hold on, I'm going to pause there. Can people stop calling Irish Gaelic? It's either Irish or Gaelga. It really gets on my wick. Anyway, Muranaka didn't know any Gaelic. So in order to translate the lyrics, they brought in the Irish writer and television broadcaster Blanadny Coffig, who also remained in the studio on the day in case any words needed to be changed at the last moment. Now, Blanadny Coffig was a TV presenter from our childhood on Echo Island mm-hmm. opposite Dara O'Brien. Oh, She's wow. now presenting nationwide. <laughs> I think she replaced Mary Kennedy in 20... <laughs> 2020. Um, but I just, I, I'm sorry, I saw that and I was like, Blanadny Coffig had input on Metal Gear Solid. That is incredible. For anyone that's kind of going, don't know who these people are, whatever, like that, out of all of them, 
if you're a Metal Gear Solid fan, I would recommend you go off onto YouTube and just type in Daniel O'Donnell. And then just try and imagine Metal, the, the world of Metal Gear Solid and this particular person. The connections there are just, it, that's insane. That collection of people is insane. In short, music of Metal Gear Solid, very good. Mm. Very good. Yeah. And that is what we thought of Metal Gear Solid. So what we're going to do is take a quick break and then we are going to come back to summarise our thoughts and to give a rating on Metal Gear Solid. Uh, So yeah, we're going to take a quick little break and we'll be back right after this. All right then, it is time for the part of the show that we like to call The Verdict. And this is indeed where we, yeah, where we give you our, our final thoughts on the game. But just before we do that, we have some reviews here from critics at the time. And typically, I used to read these out. But you know what? Lads, I get you to read out other quotes. So you might as well read out the review quotes as well. Our first review is uh, from Jeff Gerstman of GameSpot. They gave it 8.4 out of 10. And Gerstman said, quote, The game definitely is revolutionary in many ways. It breaks new ground in gameplay and truly brings the video game one step closer to the realm of movies. It is, without a doubt, a landmark game. But do we really want games that are more like movies? Metal Gear Solid stands as more of a work of art than as an actual game. It's definitely worth purchasing, but don't be surprised if you suddenly get extremely angry when you finish the game the day after you brought it home. Uh, Second review from Randy Nelson of IGN gave it 9.8 out of 10 and Nelson said, quote, I'm in awe, an admittedly ambitious project from the very beginning. Metal Gear Solid has managed to deliver dutifully on all of its promises. From beginning to end, it comes close to perfection in any other game in in PlayStation's action genre. Beautiful, engrossing and innovative, it excels in every conceivable category. Major Mike of GamePro uh, reviewed Metal Gear Solid as well. Don't have a score, but Major Mike of GamePro said, quote, Even with its minor faults, Metal Gear Solid is this season's top offering that no self-respecting gamer should be without. Uh, Forget the fast food action titles with rehashed formulas that never worked. Uh, Metal Gear Solid elevates video gaming to high entertainment. In Electronic Gaming Monthly... Um, they have four reviewers. That was their their style. Crispin Boyer, John Ricciardi, uh, Dan Hugh and John Davison. And ultimately they ended up giving Metal Gear Solid 40 out of 40. And I picked out a quote from Davison. So Davison said, quote, Part action movie, part action game. The, the dynamics of MGS will blow you away. It's so much more than a game. It's an experience. And finally, from Edge, which we don't have a reviewer because we don't give uh, bylines, but they gave it 9 out of 10. And the critic for Edge, who reviewed Metal Gear Solid, said, quote, Ultimately, Metal Gear Solid rewards players in a way only a pitiful number of games do. Until the game is finished, its gameplay elements continually threaten to change, offering players new challenges to deal with. Right, well thank you very much lads for reading out all those quotes. Now forget every one of them, because none of those opinions matter. The only opinions that matter 
are Adam's, Josh's and mine as we bestow badges of approval or disapproval on Metal Gear Solid. So how this works is that each of us will give Metal Gear Solid a rating and that rating is either a pass, a play or an espionage explosion. A pass, we don't think you should play this game. A play, we think you should play this game. And or an espionage explosion, we really think you should play this game. All rationale for ratings is entirely up to whomever is bestowing the badge of approval slash disapproval. Uh, we change the order of badge bestowers on each episode, and this week the order is as follows: it's me, Adam, and then Josh. So let's give our final ratings of Metal Gear Solid. So I probably don't have an awful lot to add on Metal Gear Solid. It is something I hold dear, something I have oodles of nostalgia for. I played it when it came out or like, you know, close enough to. I played the demo and then got the game and I was blown away because I hadn't played anything like it before. Uh, maybe, probably my first like stealth game, really. And certainly a game that I was like, wow, yeah, it is so filmic. No, in 2023, I don't know if that would have this, like, I'm maybe a bit more tired on that. And I am kind of like, eh, if I want to watch a film, I'll watch a film. <laughs> yeah, but but it, it blew me away back in the day. But, you know, we always say, like, uh, we're, we're talking about this in 2023. And there are issues. The camera's a ball ache for the, for the, the most part. Uh, but I do think the story holds up. Like, the, it, it's not faultless. But I will say that, Christ, a lot of it is so good. Like, and, and it, of course there's going to be nostalgia colouring my, my perception here. Of course there is. But Metal Gear Solid, it's just the best. It's just, <laughs> ah, it's just great, isn't it? Like, it's an espionage explosion. Like, and, and again... Acknowledging the faults or the 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 paired backness of its stealth, like would I say it's an espionage explosion if I never played it until the last two weeks? I don't know, really. I did play it when it came out, and I've played it numerous times um, up until now, and I just think it's great. It's an espionage explosion, Adam Carroll. What say you? Uh, I won't keep you long, lads. It's easy peasy, lemon squeezy, espionage explosion all day long. Absolutely love this game. Love it, love it, love it. It is one of my favourites of all time. It will always be. It's incredible. And Josh, will you make it a full house? Yeah, it's tough because it's like really, really good and... uh, I do love the game very much, Lee, but I also agree with you that it's, it's it is we there's like it's tough to recommend in some ways. Like if you were trying to sort of recommend it to like a modern audience, it is funny how with when they did Metal Gear Solid Three Subsistence, it was just like oh. Yeah, obviously the old camera is just deleted now. Like that's why why wasn't it always like this? It just instantly just took over everything. And it is funny when you go back and you see the sort of top down camera. Um but I don't really think that gets in the way. I think I think I think so much about the game is still pretty essential. Um 
it's not the best Metal Gear Solid game, I don't think, but it is a phenomenal game. And I think you sort of look at it in context. I think it's massively influential. It has to be played. It's an espionage explosion from me. It's a slightly measured one because the actual exploding is 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 not very good quite a lot of the time. But there's enough exploding in the boss fights <laughs> to make the explosion a good explosion. So it's an espionage explosion, I think. Out of 18 games, the second ever game to get the uh, full house espionage explosion. So congratulations, Metal Gear Solid. But forget that, all right? We move on from Metal Gear Solid because we need to focus on what we're going to be talking about on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom because we're going to be looking at a game that had Griffin McElroy of Polygon saying, quote, despite a lack of much life or death peril, this game still delivers some genuine scares. Rich McCormack at Eurogamer said, quote, stop and peer too long into this game's gloom and you'll see the zips on the monster's costumes. Take it at speed and you'll find a haunted house worth visiting. And Ben Barrett of Rock Paper Shotgun said, quote, it's not a simple excuse for gore and violence, nor is it only interested in shocking you with sudden scream and blood-splattered visage. It wants to horrify. It'll also intrigue, terrify and surprise you in equal measure. Let's jump forward in our sneaky DeLorean up to 2013 and another horror game. If you hadn't already noticed, on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom, we're going to be discussing, reviewing, dissecting Outlast. can't believe it's been 10 years since Outlast. So I do like to, you know, a little bit of a taster. Um, everyone's experience with Outlast or knowledge of Outlast. Uh, Josh Wise, have you played Outlast? Didn't play it, didn't play it, like knew about it, knew that it was in that post-amnesia horror games that do that thing. And I knew about the camera and the night vision-y stuff. But never played it. Very good. Adam Carroll, did you play Outlast? I played it two years ago. Oh, <laughs> okay. I played Outlast up until a point. I played Outlast on the internet. Oh. I streamed the, a, a lot of the game, but I didn't finish it. I didn't finish it. Why didn't I finish it? Well, I guess you're just going to have to tune in in a fortnight's time, <laughs> aren't you? If I remember to answer that question, <laughs> which I might not, but we'll see. It's a roller coaster ride here on Stealth Boom Boom, which is why it is such a shame that we have to end the show. But we do, we do for for another week. Um, but yes, thank you very much, dear listener, for listening. Of course, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want more of this podcast, then 
we ask you to subscribe to this podcast via your podcast app of choice. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Amazon, whatever. We are on there. Just search for Stealth Boom Boom and you'll, you'll find us. Also, please do rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. It genuinely does help. So yeah, if you could do that, that would also be wonderful. You can also follow Stealth Boom Boom on whatever social network exists when this podcast is going out. We are at Stealth Boom Boom. And you can also follow all of us. I am at Cullum underscore Ahern. Adam is at Adam Zokes. And Josh is at Joshy Wise. But now it's time for my least favourite part of the show. Yes, this is the part of the show where we bid the listener adieu. So say goodbye, Adam Carroll. Goodbye. Say goodbye, Josh Wise. Bye. And say goodbye, Colin Ahern. Sloan Gaffold.